Hello and welcome to episode 1973 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined as always by Ben Limber of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, there are honest to goodness spring training games going on today, so yeah. doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it's another milestone reached on the long march to opening day. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's a, a college team <laughs> playing against non-starters in some cases, it still counts. I mean, if that is your like criteria, Ben, then you should just watch college baseball. Because guess <laughs> yeah. what? There's been baseball on. Although I, I understand, I know why people get like defensive is, is maybe too strong, but are like, there's baseball other places besides Major mm-hmm. League Baseball. And that is true. And I hope folks will check that out. But I do understand that when people's like main viewing experience is, you know, Major League Baseball, this is a momentous occasion. But also, Mm -hmm. Ben, you should watch college baseball. Yeah, so I've been told. (laughs) There are just so many players, you know, it's it's hard to know who they are. It's hard enough to keep track who the major leaguers are these days. There are more of them than ever. But to have to know anything about college teams where all the players turn over every few years and there are so many teams and I have no real loyalty to any of them. it's It's a lot to dip your toe into. Sure, but some of them, Ben, have tremendous names. Yes, that is true. (laughs) That is something that Michael Bauman keeps me apprised of, so I do appreciate that aspect of it. (laughs) So we, for the first time in quite a while, are putting out a help wanted sign here. We are. Just a a little bit of business to get things started today. We are, by the way, doing a team preview podcast today, as usual at this time of year. So we will be talking to Matt Gelb of The Athletic about the Phillies in a little while, and then Nathan Ruiz of The Baltimore Sun about the Baltimore Orioles, and a little bit of banter before then. But we have to say that we're looking for a little help because the illustrious Dylan Higgins is moving on. Dylan, who has edited the podcast for several years at this point, he has uh, gotten a new opportunity and will be leaving Fangraphs. And so we are hiring a podcast editor. We're looking for someone to help edit Effectively Wild. There have been really only two editors in the history of Effectively Wild, the long history, me and Dylan. And aside from occasional off days, Dylan has handled that job for going on six years at this point and has done so very well. So we're very grateful for his contributions and the time he's put into the podcast. And we will miss him and we wish him well. He's not gone yet. (laughs) He's still here for the next several episodes. And I feel strange uh, memorializing him here as a podcast editor, knowing that he is currently editing everything I'm saying. (laughs) Hi, Dylan. (laughs) hope the editing is going well. Thanks for all your help (laughs) and your continued assistance. But yeah, we need a new podcast editor and we need one fairly soon. We're looking to choose someone in the next couple of weeks and, and get them started. So we have a a process set up for this. Would you care to explain how people can apply if they're interested? Sure. So we are going to have a a posting up at Fangraphs in the next little while. So there will be detail there also. But we imagine that, you know, we seem to have every kind of job represented (laughs) in in our listenership. And that might include a couple of folks who could be looking to add a show to a 
portfolio of podcast editing work. So we thought we'd put the call out here too. If you are interested in working with us, you can email wanted at fangraphs.com and the subject line of that email should be podcast editor 2023. And the subject line is important because it helps to make sure that we don't miss anyone who might be interested. And so, yeah, that's going to be our process. What do you want to say? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, got to get the subject line right because attention to detail, important in a podcast editor. So (laughs) you screw up the subject line, you're immediately ruled out. No, that's not true necessarily. But it'll just make things easier for Rick to find the right emails. Yeah. Just looking for some podcast editing experience and proficiency, and that can be in whatever software you use. So Dylan and I have always used Audacity to edit Effectively Wild, but many podcast editors use other programs. So whatever works for you, GarageBand or Pro Tools or whatever it is. And some familiarity with baseball is a plus, and some familiarity with Effectively Wild is a plus. If you are applying because you are hearing us talk about this right now, then you have familiarity with Effectively Wild, or you would not be hearing this. (laughs) And with baseball, for that matter. Yeah, exactly. Well, (laughs) one would think, right? Probably wouldn't be listening to this if not for some familiarity with baseball. But it would be helpful to have some baseball knowledge and, and also to have some knowledge of the podcast to know how we have done things here historically. Yeah. And also because uh, just listening to the show is part of editing the podcast. And right. so that would be a little less onerous and, and take less time if uh, you were already planning to commit that time by listening to Effectively Wild. And other than that, you know, we care about audio quality here. And there are a lot of podcasts out there, even in the year 2023, whether they're baseball podcasts or not, where the content is great. But you see people say, oh, too bad. It sounds like they're talking through tin cans or that one guest was inaudible and the other was deafeningly loud. Or I was driven to distraction because someone was clicking their mouse the entire time or whatever it is. We strive to minimize those distractions and provide a, a nice audio experience for all of you here. We're not doing anything super fancy. It's not like Radio Lab or anything in Effectively right. Wild, but you know, we want to keep it clean and sounding as good as possible and having enough uh, diligence that you're not hearing things that are slipping into the show that should not be slipping into the show with yeah. uh, great regularity. You know, all of our many, many, many mistakes <laughs> that, that you never hear. We don't make that many mistakes, but, but we, we make some mistakes. <laughs> we make some mistakes. And, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that that might come as a shock to to some is is a testament to Dylan's good work over the years, but there are mistakes and we do ask them to be expunged from the record. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. And there are some mistakes that we don't catch that uh, are not expunged from the record. Yeah. Although, yeah, I mean, if you can catch a mistake as the podcast editor, even better. So some flexibility is also a plus Yeah, because uh, we maintain a pretty prolific podcasting schedule over here and it's not always regular in the sense that it's not always the same exact days and times. So the same number of episodes every week, but yeah. you know we're responsive to news and we have other things going on. And so uh, the exact recording times can shift from week to week, although we try to provide some predictability there. Yes. So 
I think that's probably all that we have to say. Yeah. Occasionally, we've uh, gotten people reaching out asking for production help, and we never really needed any, but we, now we do. do now. Yeah. yeah. So don't delay because uh, yeah. we're hoping to find someone in the next couple of weeks. So again, wanted at fangraphs.com. Which is uh, for for applicants. It's it's not like for fugitives from the law or yeah. anything. It's wanted at fangraphs.com, subject line podcast editor 2023. And if you have a resume, great. Please attach it. You don't have to come up with a complete cover letter or anything like that. But if you want to summarize something in the email about your podcast editing experience or your familiarity with baseball or Effectively Wild, which probably isn't on your resume, I would imagine, unless you just want to show potential employers your fine taste in podcasts. But that would be great. Yeah. And well, you know, I'm proposing this to you live on mic, Ben, (laughs) and Dylan will be hearing it live on well, headphones, mm-hmm. but we'll also have to have Dylan on um, yes. before he goes oh, as yes. a send off because we will miss him very much. And like you said, like I think that the consistency of the audio quality of the show is like hopefully not an unsung hero, but if it is unsung, like we will sing it now, like mm-hmm. has made a really big difference in the way that people find the show and stick with it. So, you know, we appreciate his good work and hope to, you know, continue to know Dylan, the person, mm-hmm. even as we have to move on with a different editor. So Indeed. All right. And uh, we look forward to hearing from all of you and yeah. uh, talking to and meeting some of you. It's a, a job that requires close communication and contact and collaboration with us, whether that's yeah. a positive or a negative. So, if that's something you're interested in, apply, and uh, we will talk to some of you soon. Okay, so some banter. First, I have an update in my ongoing campaign to amend dictionary.com mm. to more accurately reflect facts about wow. the extra innings runner that we refer to as the zombie runner. So those of us who have not been with us uh, may not know that <laughs> last October, dictionary.com with some fanfare trumpeted the additions of new words to the dictionary, as it does uh, every year at least. And one of those new words, or I guess it's two words, it's a term, it's a phrase, was Ghost Runner, which dismayed me partly because the definition was incorrect or incomplete. The definition originally of Ghost Runner at dictionary.com just said, a runner who is automatically placed on second base at the beginning of each half of an extra inning before any pitch is thrown. And in the origin section, it said first used in 2020 per an amendment to the rules of play. So I considered this incorrect on multiple levels. As we've discussed, uh, there was an earlier meaning and a different meaning of Ghost Runner, right? And it's uh, not from 2020. That's just when what some people refer to as the Ghost Runner began to be used at the major league level. So I wrote in to dictionary.com and I uh, provided some documentation and suggested that this should be amended. And in late November, in fact, it was. And I was very pleased to see that feedback in court. And so now if you go to ghostrunner at dictionary.com, it just links you to two other pages. One, the imaginary runner, which is uh, the original meaning of ghost runner and the reason why we don't want ghost runner to refer to the zombie runner, who is a corporeal being, a living, breathing person you can see on the bases who is reanimated after making an out in the previous inning. 
And it also links to automatic runner, which is the technical term for the extra innings runner. They're yes. now just the terms for this thing have proliferated. And like actual zombies. Yeah, I guess that is true. And, you know, on Hang Up and Listen, a, a podcast we enjoy at Slate and sometimes appear on this week, Josh Levine debuted a, a new one, or I guess he thought it was a new one, although he noted that after he thought of it, he found that others had suggested it, which was Unearned Runner, which is fine. Like, it's not bad. It, it's uh, pretty appropriate, right? It's an unearned run when that runner scores. I, I have no problem with Unearned Runner. And again, I consider anything other than Ghost Runner to be kind of a, a fellow traveler of Zombie Runner. But I wrote to Josh and I said, you know, at this point, I think we have to consolidate the, the anti-Ghost Runner right. forces. We have to come together behind one term or two terms or something, you know, it seems like Manfred Mann and, and Zombie Runner are sort of the leading ones. Mm-hmm. And and perhaps we don't want to further divide if we want to succeed in elevating something over Ghost Runner. You know, it's like you have to form some kind of coalition here. I mean, right. it's like, you know, Bernie voters voting for Biden to defeat Trump or something like that. It's like, you know, you, you got to make some compromises maybe and support your not number one preferred candidate in the interest <laughs> of of defeating a, a candidate that you very much dislike. So right. something along those lines. Anyway, yeah. the point is that Dictionary.com made that change, but there was one mistake that persisted, which was that on the automatic runner page, it still said that that term's origin was 2020. Right, when MLB No, right. This right. is a, a concept that goes back quite a ways. Generations. So, yeah, or, yeah, probably at this point. And so I, I wrote in again, trying not to be too much of a, a pest, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it again and, and just said, yeah, you know, I, I think 2020 wasn't technically the origin and it, this didn't originate in MLB. And uh, the woman I was corresponding with who appears to since have left her job there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh, Ben. (laughs) Which I'm sure is just a coincidence. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But uh, my most recent email to her bounced back. (laughs) It's completely unrelated, I'm sure. But she was very helpful and uh, professed, at least, to be amenable to my emails. Anyway... In response to my email, she did some searching of her own and and she found references to the automatic runner by that term and the same concept going back to 1985. Each of us found references in 1985 in softball. So it was in softball and then it was in international competition and and, then minor leagues, the WBC, et cetera, all before it got to MLB. And I'm pleased to report that the automatic runner page has been updated again. And now the origin of Automatic Runner, according to Dictionary.com, first recorded in 1980 to 85, added to Major League Baseball rules of play in 2020. So there we go. The wheels of Dictionary.com justice, they grind deliberately. I'll say I won't say slowly, but they have rolled around to getting these things correct. So I have no further notes which I guess is good because my contact there has departed. <laughs> but but also, <laughs> no more complaints to lodge. I think Dictionary.com has it right now. I wonder if she forwarded your email to, I mean, I know you said it, it kind of bounced back, but I wonder if it, it found its way to her and she sent it on to whoever took her role and was like, look, just take care of this or you will <laughs> never hear the end of it. I think one yeah. of the things I admire about you, Ben, is that 
you know, you're pretty good at like rolling with stuff, you know? <laughs> you have a good perspective on what deserves real agitation. But when you get the bit between your teeth, man, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever known anyone as persistent as you. <laughs> you know, a lesser man would would have let it go. Maybe mm -hmm. a, a man at peace sooner would yes. have let it go. But now we all get to be at peace because of your diligence and potentially you bothering someone out of their job. You know, who could say? Yeah, it's only a few emails. Uh, I assure everyone I was not uh, following up to ask for updates or anything. Months have and elapsed. I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were kind and yes, oh, well, absolutely well courteous, considered, polite, yeah. not rants or screeds sure, in any yeah. way. No screeds. Uh, we're anti-screed. <laughs> I saved those for the podcast, but right. it, it's been months since my last email, so I, I was surprised to see that she had departed. But she did her work well and uh, passed along my input to their baseball lexicographer. And they came to, I believe, the correct decision. So we're stuck with the rule, unfortunately, and we're still stuck with many people referring to the rule incorrectly, but not Dictionary.com. Dictionary.com is on the side of the angels now. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there is peace. There is peace in the land until <laughs> we have to coalesce around, you know, the, the, the real terms so that we can fight back the zombie horde. Mm -hmm. I'm all caught up on Last of Us, and I'm so stressed. But <laughs> yeah, it is fairly really stressful. stressful. Yeah. You know, I'm just I'm worried about them. Don't know what's going to happen. Don't want to know. Worried I will find out and be very sad about it. Yeah, I do know, but I will not spoil anything. Thank you. I I had to I had to stop watching the, a playthrough of a streamer I like because mm. I was like I I don't want it spoiled for me. Understandable. Mm. So in other ongoing negotiations, Jason Stark reported at The Athletic that MLB is back on the sticky stuff enforcement grind mm. here, which is not a surprise, really, no. because as others uh, and as we have noted, the spin rate has ticked up almost all the way again. So there was a immediate plummet after enforcement started, after they really started cracking down on foreign substances. And then slowly but surely... The spin rates started creeping up again, yeah. and unless uh, pitchers had devised some new legal means of enhancing their spin rates, which I suppose is possible in, in some limited degree in some places and with some players, but on this sort of sweeping league-wide level, it seemed unlikely, and yeah. it seems that MLB has come to the same conclusion, and now for the third straight season, MLB is uh, trying to do something about it in a slightly different way. So they are perhaps uh, tilting at a windmill. I don't know, but they are trying. They're doing their best to do whatever you do when you tilt at windmills. And I don't know why people are, are going after windmills in the first place. But the point is that they are changing their process now to be more thorough. And so... We are in store, perhaps, for some true sensual baseball scenes, mm. even more so than mm. the past couple seasons. Because if you recall, there were initially inspections of uh, belts and, and other body parts and everything. And then last year, they simplified it in most cases to just checking the hands and the figures because they figured, well, that's the last stage, right? And if you're going to have sticky stuff on your person, it will wind up on your hands and fingers. So maybe we can just cut out the middleman body parts and, and just focus on the end goal. And it seems like that was perhaps not working so well. And it was often pretty perfunctory. And it was, uh, you know, 
men not wanting to touch other men's hands and have their hands linger, except for that one weird case when that happened. And so now it seems like they're going back to being less predictable and not just doing these checks at certain times and after certain innings. And they can go back to checking caps and gloves and belts uh, regularly, and they can just go out there and and check in the middle of an inning. I mean, of course, I guess they technically could always do that, but that might be a, a more common feature of the enforcement this year. So we'll see. Like, it seems like this should be a solvable problem, right? I mean, we have... HD 4K cameras trained on these guys like they're 60 feet 6 inches away like you've got a zillion angles on them we can see everything they do out there and yeah. what they touch and yeah. any shiny parts on their person like it it seems like this should not shiny be an impossible parts. problem to solve shiny right <laughs> yeah sometimes shiny ears uh, which was not shown to be anything illegal mm. in Joe Musgrove's case anyway just saying like you know it it seems like if everyone's checking and everyone's watching and everyone is aware of this that it it should not be possible to continue to cheat in this way as effectively as uh, perhaps pitchers were but until we get a, a tacky ball, right? Mm-hmm. Until we get something like they have in NPB where there's just a, a ball that is stickier on the surface and comes that way and everyone's fine with the way that it plays. I guess we are stuck with just kind of this cat and mouse sticky stuff game. So this is just the latest evolution. I just, you know, now I'm, I'm revisiting my mental image of getting them getting up in James Karenshack's hair. It's yep. like really they really got up in there. And I yes, thought we'll never see anything more intimate than that. And then the postseason <laughs> rolled around and I was like, oh my. I don't, I don't know if this is like okay for broadcast TV. We might need to put this on on a service. On yeah. A special service (laughs) yeah i mean like look they gotta try they gotta try to to keep counterbalancing what will i imagine always be a a group of players who are ahead of their ability to enforce something so they gotta try because these like in-season fluctuations are just so they're pretty obvious they cut there's a Mm -hmm. lot of gall involved here you know maximum gall (laughs) <laughs> from the player population. And so they got to they got to try. I think that like uh everybody should just get over it. It, it it's not the worst thing to hold hands, you know? No. It is weird to hold hands in work context sometimes. I get that part, mm-hmm. but but what else are you going to do? You got to get in there. They can't come up with something like, you know when you go to, you know when you fly, sometimes TSA is like, we're going to rub these little strips on your hands. Mm, and those yes. little strips are supposed to tell them if you've been like touching bombs lately, yes. I guess, right? It's mm-hmm. supposed to be like the bomb paper. <laughs> It's bomb paper. No, they have yeah. that for sticky stuff. They can't just be like, here you go. They got a, a nice intermediary substance, you know, mm. if, if people feel a way, I guess, about touching another man's hands. I mean, also, they could just get over that if they wanted to. It <laughs> might benefit them in other ways. But they can't come up with 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 bomb paper for – I'm going <laughs> to stick with this as a technical term because surely the pros, you know, surely the guy from the Hurt Locker is like, yeah, bomb paper. You know, that's what we yep. call that. 
You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like there should be some sort of detection, but also it's not the same substance all the time, right? Guys use different stuff. They yeah. have different concoctions. And some of those concoctions are blends of legal substances. So, you know, mm-hmm. what do you do? I like the idea of there being like a spotter in the press box that's like shiny. That one's shiny. <laughs> Go check out that shiny over there. <laughs> you know, in a in an athletic endeavor where people are sweating all of the time and yeah. are just going to be going to be shiny. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like they go into the dugout between innings and are like, we have to blot because we right. become shiny. They don't yeah. do that because that's yeah. silly. You're doing yeah. sports. Maybe we need like a, a crow or a magpie or something that like collects oh. shiny objects with it, I think is maybe a, a myth yeah. to some degree. But, you know, have some sort of bird that does that and, and could just fly down, swoop down and, and alight on a pitcher who is too shiny. Yeah, and- definitely what we want to do is have trained predator <laughs> birds swooping in on guys. Yeah. I'm sure the PA would be wild about that. <laughs> Nobody would have any notes, you know? Yeah, they don't have to peck them or anything, but, you know, just sort of spot the, the behavior that's Listen, going on. have you ever encountered a crow that has established territory? <laughs> they are aggressive mm-hmm. and they remember people, you know, mm, yeah. they remember people. And so what happens? Like what happens when let's just pick a player again. We'll say James Karenshaw because, you know, of the intimacy with the hair. He rolls through and that crow's like, I remember last time that guy. And then is he just going to bother him forever? Or maybe it'll be like, you know, it's not foolproof. So maybe it'll be like the 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 dog in the most recent episode of The Last of Us. (laughs) Unreliable zombie detector. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying, who knows that? I think that dog's sense of smell is, you know, it's not quite right. People are going to be like so happy when that show is done for the season because then this is what happens when I'm actually caught up on pop culture. I just want to talk about it all the time. <laughs> right. Another update on episode 1904, I think it was, we speculated about whether score bugs this season would display the pitch clock countdown. Oh, yeah. And we've gotten some clarity on that, not only with uh, games of a kind beginning, but also just some news uh, that there was a piece in the Chicago Sun-Times about this. And both ESPN and the NBC Sports RSNs are planning on including the pitch clock in some capacity on their MLB score bugs this season. So they're still testing designs in spring training, but... NBC is uh, trying a couple of designs, one with the clock inside the score bug and the other in a circle to the left of the graphic. Mm. And it's uh, not going to be flashy, they say. Uh, They don't want to be demanding your attention like a a shiny object with a a bird of some sort, potentially. But it's, it's there if you want it. And it's not taking up a ton of space. And then ESPN's plan is uh, the quote, we looked at changing it from the pitch count to the clock at a certain time. We opted to keep the pitch count. And when the clock hits a certain time, it would slide in and the pitch count would slide over. If it gets to zero without a pitch, there will be another spot with the pitcher's name that will say with a bright colored background pitch clock violation. And then the spot where the count and base runners is located would go to a ball or a strike for two or three seconds before it goes back to the pitch count. So that was one thing we had wondered whether it would be like a a shot clock sort of situation where maybe when it was getting closer to zero, then it would show up. But maybe it wouldn't be there from the beginning. But the clock doesn't start from as high a number. And I can see where when this is just starting to get a feel for the cadence of it. Maybe it would be advantageous. Like, I think most minor league broadcasts, if not all, don't 
typically display the entire pitch clock countdown yeah. in their score bugs, and, and maybe they have less involved score bugs typically than MLB broadcasts do, but it, it hasn't really been standard that we always see it, right? and it could get cluttered and it could be distracting in theory, but maybe at least early in the season as we're all trying to acclimate to this Maybe it would be helpful to get a feel for the amount of time that's available and and to do that via this countdown. Maybe we won't always need it and we can wean ourselves off it, particularly as the violations decrease as they did during the minor league season as players themselves got accustomed to this. So that's the plan, at least for a couple of networks early in the season. I think that that's a prudent plan. I think that like I really appreciate how much um, like time and and an effort the league has put into trying to make people familiar with the new rules before the season starts. There's been like a real full court press about mm-hmm. this. It's on MLB Network. You know, they're posting stories on MLB.com, I'm sure, as we've discussed, every spring training broadcast is going to run through them. And I think that the the network's taking a similar approach that it's like, okay, you need to kind of get accustomed to the rhythm of this because it will be a change, particularly for people who don't. Uh, watch much minor league ball i think Mm -hmm. that that seems prudent and then like you know at a certain point we'll be like oh yeah that thing over there so Mm -hmm. i think it's good yep and also i don't know what odds you would have put on albert pujols fulfilling his 10-year post-retirement personal Mm. services contract with the angels but i would not have given great odds of that happening but it is happening And Sam Blum of The Athletic, who joined us recently for the Angels preview, he wrote a good piece about this because Albert Pujols is in Angels camp. He's around providing personal services, (laughs) whatever that means. And it is sort of vague, but he's there, which surprises me, actually. And as Sam chronicles, like it's kind of weird and you could imagine it might be awkward given the way things ended between Pujols and the Angels, right, where they released him. I mean, you know, justifiably, I think, given his performance for the Angels, but also he's a legend and he's Albert Pujols, and uh, it seemed like there was some disagreement about his role and what that could be, and and they did just sort of summarily release him in the end. So I guess it worked out fine for both parties. The Angels freed up a roster spot that they could use for other players, like Jared Walsh and Shohei Otani, and Pujols eventually got to have his incredible homecoming in St. Louis. But you would think that maybe that parting would have been a prelude to a a subsequent parting or that once Pujols retired, he would have felt like, "Eh, maybe I don't want to be bound by this uh, 10-year contract with my former team and and the team for which I did not have my best production. But no, it's, it's happening. They're going ahead with this. And you would think that Either party could have gotten out of it, probably, if they really wanted to, right? I mean, the Angels could have just paid him out, right? I mean, the terms call for $1 million a year for 10 years, which is not an insubstantial amount of money for most humans. But for Albert Pujols, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure he appreciates getting a million dollars a year, but also he made— Not a pressing need. Yeah, like he made almost $350 million in his major league career. So even if we don't adjust for inflation, this is a drop in the bucket in terms of his total career earnings. And 
I know nothing about how his finances are set up, and hopefully he has uh, saved and invested wisely and is getting dividends that would amount to more per year than he is getting from the angels here. So, you know, he could have walked away from this, I I would imagine, if he said, I really don't want to do this. You know, would they have held him to providing personal services against his will? You must provide personal services. (laughs) I doubt it, right? And and yeah, similarly, if the angels had felt like "Eh, maybe it would be kind of odd to have Albert Pujols around after the way things ended. You yeah. know, they, they could have just reached some kind of settlement or compromise or paid out. Who knows? So it's not an enormous sum of money for a team over a decade either. No. And yet it's happening. And it's happening, I guess, because it was part of his contract and he's honoring his contract. And I guess he still wants to be around baseball in some capacity. Like you, you would think after a 22-year career, he, he'd be entitled to a break. But, you know, maybe he likes uh, being around the game and he seemed to suggest he might be interested in coaching or something at some point. And, and that's the other thing. Like when Pujols signed his contract with the Angels, I think you you could have said, well, odds are he probably will not fulfill this entire term with the Angels, right? right. Like something will happen. He will retire. They will release him or trade him or, or whatever, like what ended up happening. Right? Yeah. And I think you could say the same about this decade-long personal services contract that uh, perhaps he will not serve this entire term either. Right. But it's odd because you'd think that if if Pujols were going to be in sort of a ceremonial veteran, uh, just being around the team and doing community outreach or whatever it is, it's not clear exactly what he'll be doing, that he would be doing that for the St. Louis Cardinals, right? Because he had his best years for that organization. He had his storybook ending with the Cardinals. And so you'd think that would make more sense logically. But who knows? That might happen at some point, or maybe he will want to shift into a different role in baseball that will preclude him providing these personal services and uh, then that will come to an end but so far it's happening so I'm surprised to see that maybe he really wanted to hang out in Arizona yeah, I mean, I guess there are a lot of ways he could have done that that don't involve sure. this. But, but the Angels, it, it seems like like the players are happy to have him around. I mean, yeah. who's better to provide guidance to younger players and, and talk about their experience than Albert Pujols, right? Why not right. provide hitting tips, uh, lifestyle tips, whatever it is? It doesn't seem like it could hurt to have Albert Pujols hanging around your team and uh, imparting wisdom. So why not? I why guess. not? Anyway. That is happening. It's just if you had asked me a year ago or a few months ago whether he would actually do that, whether they would both go right. ahead with that, I would have said, eh, probably not. Probably <laughs> but, not. But yeah, it's happening. Well, I hope he has a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it's not uh, a stressful sort of post and yeah. it's not making enormous demands on his schedule. Like he can just kind of show up when he wants to and provide some personal services and then depart again. So it's not like he's, you know, in the office nine to five right. every day, right? There's a lot of flexibility here, which I think makes it more appealing to him. We're really like personal services is really the like preferred nomenclature <laughs> on that. I prefer it. So I will continue to say it's personal like a, services. It's like a, it sounds like a euphemism of some sort. For I know. I was going to say, <laughs> it sounds kind of low-key horny. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. It's, no, it does. Yeah. <laughs> well, his uh, duties have not all been delineated. So we will see. Anyway, lastly... 
There was a, a thread this week from Ray's reliever Ryan Thompson, who was uh, probably best known to me prior to this thread for being one of the Pride Night objectors yeah. on the Rays. There are a handful of players who uh, refuse to go along with wearing Pride Night logos on their uniforms, etc. But he is uh, out with a new bit of news here that maybe makes him look a little more sympathetic, which is that he has put out a thread about his arbitration process with the Rays, which he lost, and it was over, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty dinky amount of money. I think it was just $200,000 separated his figure and the Rays, and the Rays prevailed, as teams have with great regularity recently. I think uh, players went 6-13 and 13 or something like that in arbitration hearings this year, and, and they had a losing record last year, too. So it seems like teams have really gotten the upper hand in this process lately, and This has gotten acrimonious at times, as we discussed in our Brewers preview and Corbin Burns and the comments he had after losing his arbitration hearing. But Thompson is uh, not really coming out with the same tone. It's more like he's uh, almost tipping his cap. He's like, oh, you got to have to hand it to the Rays for for beating me soundly here. But he does have some critiques about the process and how arbitration works, which, again, is not uncommon. Uh, People on all sides have been complaining about the arbitration process for years, which I guess could be a sign of an effective compromise if kind of everyone is unhappy with it, right? Mm. But also there are some actual problems with it, I suppose. I don't know that there's a perfect alternative to it either, but it does lead to bad blood and there are some oddities, which Thompson documents here. I I think that was the value of this thread is that he provided more of a window into the specifics than anyone typically provides to the public and, you know, exactly what criteria are involved and what the process looks like. And from his view, why the Rays won and and his argument was not the winning one here. So I think a lot of people took this as a a sign of the arbitration process being broken and and something has to be done here. And I don't know that I agree with uh, all of his critiques, but it was interesting to get a player's side of the story in a very detailed way as he laid it out here. Yeah, I think that it's always going to be an adversarial process, like that fundamentally that's that's what's at play here. But I think that the, the seemingly the obvious improvement that needs to be made is to select arbiters who have much more just sort of understanding and familiarity with the game today, you know, like to have folks who seemingly don't really know very much about baseball and can't evaluate the merits of the arguments in greater depth seems seems shocking. And I know that this isn't new, like there's been a lot written about how the folks who do arbitration are generally super well informed about baseball as a as a endeavor, but it seems like they should be, right? Yeah, you would think. I think that's what struck most people, especially people who are not familiar with this process right. and are like, wait, the arbitrators are not baseball experts. <laughs> you know, right. that's not new, but it's a hallmark of the system. But it, yeah. it does sound strange on the surface. And, and it's odd because then you have to spend a lot of the hearing explaining how baseball works right. and like <laughs> what stats mean and which are important. And so you can kind of uh, bring in whatever you want to bring in, right? But it tends 
tends to be more traditional stats just because the more complex and advanced the stat is and the metric, well, the harder it may be to explain to possibly baseball neophytes, right, who who may not have the, the grounding in even basic stats. Right. And so often it, it will tend to be more back of the baseball card-ish stuff, although in this case it was not limited to that. And it's it's never limited to that. Right. Like you can bring in whatever you want. It's well, just that- Well, you can bring in some of what you want, right? There are- That's true, yes. There are rules in the CBA. I mean, I don't know what they are in the current version of the CBA because we still don't have it, Ben. No, we don't, yeah. <laughs> I hope we have the CBA before it expires. Right, <laughs> we're point. like a, we're almost a fifth of the way through the, anyway, that's neither here nor there, but there are things that they specifically exclude within the confines of the CBA from from the arbitration process. But yeah, like otherwise you can bring stuff in and it's not even, it's not just being able to say, well, that, you know, that stat is like meaningful or significant. It's also being able to say within the context of like, say this specific arbitration hearing, like you, the Rays are citing stats in an effort to suppress salary or to to have the arbiter side with you if we want to take a more neutral line on what they were doing there that are not the stats you use in your roster construction, which seems relevant when you're talking about the the use a player has had in his pro career, right? Like you, you would want an, an arbiter who could say, well, you're not determining his usage based on the stats you're citing. You don't care about meltdowns. Like that's not a stat you really use, right? Also like, I forgot we even had that stat. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not often cited. <laughs> it's not often cited, right? And so I think having a a person sitting there or a group of people sitting there who can really come in and, and evaluate the case, not only within the context of the player, but within the context of the industry, within the context of the roster that that player is on and sort of understand how the team's use of him is going to dictate some of the the statistical record he's able to produce. And I I understand that you want the person sitting in that seat to be neutral and not subject to bias. That's that is important for both sides in the process, both the team and the player. But, you know, having them come in with, you know, a, a degree of familiarity that might range from casual to expert to like a tiny baby. Uh-huh. <laughs> seems like it's going to introduce volatility into the process that it is specifically trying to avoid, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't care for that. Yeah, it's it's a challenge for sure. I mean, I think part of it is just that uh, you want highly experienced and, and certified arbitrators, right? right. And, and you want people with expertise and not just in baseball, but in handling cases. Right. And that limits your pool to begin with. And sure. so if you're going to further limit that pool to people with great baseball expertise and statistical acumen, well, now you're really perhaps slicing it pretty thin. There might not be that many. And then, as you said, right, there could be possible bias. You know, what if right. the arbitrator is a big fan of the team that has presented the hearing or, you know, doesn't like uh, Ryan Thompson because he remembers one of those meltdowns or whatever it is, right? Like that could happen. 
Or, you know, I think these arbitrators, they're appointed kind of as part of a mutual process, right, with right. The, the league and the Players Association. And, and arbitrators get dismissed, right? If right. Uh, one side doesn't like how they're ruling, they can just dismiss them. And I think the league has been more aggressive about dismissing arbitrators. And so then you're going through perhaps an even more limited pool quickly because, you know, if it turns out that uh, one of these big baseball expert arbitrators tends to side more with players players or with management and then the side that is getting the lower hands not the upper hand dismisses them well then you're going through your already limited pool of potential arbitrators so i think those are all issues but it is also something of an issue perhaps to have people who are just far from subject matter experts but are perhaps in some cases completely ignorant of the matters being discussed so like a that's, little babe yes <laughs> and i would recommend uh, we actually 10 years ago at at Baseball Perspectives back in 2013, we did a series that we called Arbitration Showdown, where we just went through mock hearings. Yeah. And we had actual arbitrators who were my mom <laughs> and <laughs> and two of my mom's friends and colleagues, which, uh, you know, look, we were on a limited budget, but also uh, it kind of mirrored the actual process because my mom right. doesn't know very much about baseball. And so having her be on this mock panel, it actually made sense. And, you know, one of the other arbitrators was a baseball fan, but not like a stat nerd. And then the other, I don't think really was a baseball fan at all. So it, it did kind of mirror how it actually works. And we did a 10 part series where we had mock hearings for a bunch of players and we'd have one writer present a case for the player and then the other would take the other side and then there would be rebuttals and then the arbitrators would rule and we would add some statistical context and everything. I think it, it holds up and is interesting and kind of enlightening. So again, it's not new. Like right. my mom, who is, you know, a lawyer and an arbitrator, like she could theoretically be on one of these panels. Yeah. Like she has not been, but you know, it's that kind of person. So right. I think one issue, though, is that there can be an imbalance in, in the resources that the two parties yes. can bring to bear on this process, right? I mean, the player and their agency can, of course, do whatever research they want and can hire anyone and can outsource and can have someone consult. But teams, you know, they have front office people who do that or they have uh, outsiders that they work with regularly and they do a lot of these cases, right? And so they right. can sort of have someone on retainer or someone who's specifically tasked with doing this and there's a lot of infrastructure there that is helpful so if you're with a big agency if you're with Boris right. Corp or someone you know they will have people that can do that too but if you're not then it might not be as thorough preparation you know like Ryan Thompson's agency is Northwest Sports Management Group mm. which is not exactly a brand name not right. a name I was that familiar with you know I, I looked up their website and Ryan Thompson is <laughs> front and center on the website he's oh, like gotcha. the only person who's shown in the photo on the homepage is is ryan thompson at least at the top so i think that probably speaks to their client roster yeah. in the majors right and just looking at the mlb trade rumors uh, agency database which might not be fully up to date there are only a few guys that are listed as being with this agency so it may be a small sort of a boutique agency that doesn't have the same level of preparation because uh, you know he seemed sort of surprised about parts of this process or things right. that the Rays did that I don't know that he necessarily should have been surprised about it if he had been coached fully. I don't know. I don't want to impugn the preparation without knowing exactly what went into it. But I'm right. just saying, you know, he didn't necessarily have the same muscle and, and firepower that 
teams do and that some players do. And and because teams have that and because many more of them have gone to file and trial lately, they seem to be winning more of these cases, which is kind of what the league wants because owners want to replace this process with some sort of algorithmically driven, you know, just automated process where based on service time or stats or whatever, money is just divvied up and you have to figure if owners are proposing that, they think that will be advantageous to them. So as flawed as the arbitration process is, it may not necessarily work out better for players. And, you know, there's always going to be some acrimony in this process because it is uh, inherently somewhat adversarial. I mean, teams want to pay you less and players want to be paid more. So (laughs) you're going to be butting heads somewhere, even if it's a little more civil or less disquieting than sitting in a room as your employer presents all the ways why you're not worth as much money as you think you are. Well, and the teams get a lot of guidance from LRD too, right? Like they're right. getting yeah. they're the, getting the labor guidance relations department, at MLB, right? Yeah. From MLB's labor relations department. So it does. I think it would it would be very easy to feel like you are on the wrong end of of the resource equation there, even if you're at a larger agency, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, it does. It does seem it seems not great, and. I think that the goal of the system should be to fairly assess the contribution of players and then pay them in accordance with that. And that doesn't mean that every player is going to win in an arbitration hearing. Like there are going to be guys who ask for more than than like comps would suggest. But I also think that, you know, when you have guys at this stage of their career, like I know that it's not going to, the math isn't going to work out every time, but in the overwhelming majority of these cases, you're still being, you're probably being paid less than your production anyway, right? So mm-hmm. uh, just give them their money, I think. <laughs> the thing is, I think they should just give them their money. <clears throat> you know, that's just like a personal opinion of mine is that like, mm-hmm. just give them their money, especially when some of the amounts that teams go to trial over, it's yeah, just like, yeah. come on guys, like mm-hmm. what is it? Sell more peanuts. You'll be fine. Yes, right. As we've noted, you know, it's not always about just that specific case because there's precedent that right. is part of it. And so right. you're sort of holding the line for the league as a whole in a sense. But it's but- funny that there's so much, so much emphasis put on that because they are simultaneously like really preoccupied with precedent while also actively removing guys from the potential precedent pool, right? Mm -hmm. Like all of these extensions that get signed before a guy has hit free agency, it's not like that extension money gets used as a precedent in arbitration, right? You're pulling that guy's salary out of the pool, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's my understanding. So it's like they're really worried about precedent while simultaneously trying to push down precedent. It's like, you got to pick a lane, though. <laughs> All right. Well, let's pick a lane that is previewing a team. And <gasps> we will take a quick break. And we will be back with Matt Gelb of The Athletic to talk about the Philadelphia Phillies, followed by Nathan Ruiz of the Baltimore Sun to discuss the Orioles. And the latest updated projections for those two teams from the Fangrass depth charts, a combination of the Zips and Steamer projection systems. The Phillies slated for 86.3 wins and a third-place finish in the NL East. The Orioles picketed for 75.7 wins, which would be good for a projected fifth-place finish in the AL East. Back in a flash.
All right, we are back, and we are joined now by Matt Gelt, who is a senior writer for The Athletics, covering the Philadelphia Phillies. Literally, he is coming to us from the press box at Phillies camp. Hello, Matt. How are you? I hope that we're going to spend the next however many minutes just talking about Noah Song and the Arcane Rule 5 <laughs> and mili- military list rules that are going to dominate the headlines all spring. That will definitely come up at some point in this segment. <laughs> but I guess I'll start here with more of a bigger picture question because last year's Phillies, as we all recall, caught fire in the playoffs, won the pennant, took the big bad Astros to a six World Series game. So in a sense, they would have to win the World Series to top last year's results. But they were also an 87 win team that squeaked into the playoffs by winning a wild card that didn't exist the year before. So how did they view their task this offseason? Did they look at themselves as a pennant-winning team that, uh, hey, we're just obviously going to get back there? Or did they see that they were a team that barely got there in the first place? I think they saw themselves as a team that was legitimately a playoff contender. And, and I understand why. They looked at the season as having two different parts. It wasn't even two different halves. It was like a two different you know, a third of the season and another two thirds of the season. And you think about it, I mean, on opening day, they had D.D. Gregorius playing shortstop for them. Matt Beerling slash Odubel Herrera was in center field. You had Jay Reese Familia pitching the eighth inning. You had Corey Knable as the closer. You had Brad Hand as a high leverage guy. I mean, they, they had a very different team at the beginning of the season last year than the one that they finished with, the one that got them into the playoffs and then through the playoffs to the World Series so I think they looked at it, and also a managerial change, of course, uh, yeah. which which was a, a big point in the season. But they looked at it as a team that went 65 and 46 under Rob Thompson and then just streaked through the playoffs. And they're like, this is a team that can contend. We have a, a roster that is, most of it is star players in their prime. We have a couple good young complementary players around them. Let's go out and spend some more money and put this thing over the top. And of course, they go out and sign Trey Turner for $300 million. And that should give you an idea of you know, how they view this roster moving forward. Yeah, I think that when we were at this point last year and we were assessing the Phillies, um, I jokingly said that I had no notes about their decision to construct a team seemingly entirely out of designated hitters. Notes emerged. <laughs> and uh, and you could see some of, some of that course correction unfold during the season when they traded for Marsh and then obviously bringing Turner in. So sort of a related question from... From just a, a fielding and, and defense perspective, how do they view themselves now and what kind of lessons did they take from what might have been a little uh, bit of a wonky roster construction last year? I think the way they look at themselves now is they are way, way stronger up the middle defensively by by a lot, and they are still really concerning on the corners, both in the infield and the outfield. I, I don't think it's any secret. I mean, look at, I, I think just up the middle, look at it. I mean, you have arguably the best catcher in the sport behind home plate. Um, and, and, and really, I think what's going to come into play more is his arm this year. Uh, I feel like catcher's arms are going to become something of a focus again uh, with, with the possibility of, of more base dealing and also fewer ability to, to hold runners on, et cetera. And then when you move Bryson Stott over to second base and add Trey Turner at shortstop, and I know Turner isn't doesn't always grade as uh, you know an elite shortstop, but – uh, the combination of those two is probably one of the best, better defensive double play tandems they've had uh, in a long time. Stott is way better suited to be at second base and shortstop, where I think he was probably more average second base. I think he can be a, a plus defender there. And then Marsh in center is 
Um, it's it's a big upgrade from what they had. Uh, Veerling was probably miscast as a center fielder, yeah. uh, more of a corner guy. And then Herrera, uh, you just never knew what you were going to get from Odubel Herrera in center field. They had Mickey Moniak running around there a lot at times uh, last year, and, and it was just okay. Marsh is good out there. Um, so yeah. they're way better up the middle. The corners are uh, the corners. I mean, it's not good. Yeah. And, and like I think they're just going to plow through it. I mean, they hope that at some point Bryce Harper's playing right field again. And Bryce is not always a plus-plus defender in right field, but he would be obviously an upgrade over Nick Castellanos. But, hey, like let's just remember all the great catches that Nick Castellanos made in the playoffs, right? <laughs> there are a lot of big free agents available this offseason and a lot of shortstops specifically. So why was Trey Turner the guy that the Phillies targeted? For one, I mean, I think it's about the fit, both on and off the field. And the fit on the field is that uh, he gives them something atop the lineup that they really haven't had in a long, long time. I mean, like even when Jimmy Rollins was batting atop the order for the Phillies, he wasn't your typical, he wasn't a high on base guy um, in most seasons atop the lineup. Turner gives you speed and, and on base skill at the very top of the lineup. And that is that is something that this team has really needed. I mean, you look at, you know, Kyle Schwarber was their, was their leadoff hitter for most of last season. And while it's a role that he likes, he is obviously not your prototypical leadoff hitter. And they probably sacrificed a bit. Um, he, he probably would have had more plate appearances with runners on base if he batted just a little lower in the lineup. And, and those home runs might have counted for a little more. But uh, Turner on the field just gives them um, a dynamic presence atop the lineup. And I think that was, if you're looking at their... Uh, their offense from last year, if it's like, where can we make the biggest upgrade? That was probably a top lineup. And it was a perfect fit because shortstop was the one spot on the field where they had an opening because they could move Stott over and Gene Segura is moving on. He's now with the Marlins. So uh, it made sense totally on the field and then off the field. he It's amazing. Like just watching in the spring, it's almost like he's been here for five years. I mean, he just fits in personality wise. And they knew that because Schwarber was his teammate before. He gave them some intel. Kevin Long, the hitting coach here has worked with Turner and they're very close and he gave some insight as to how he would fit in here. He's like really fit in and I can see why he was their top choice. They just felt like he was going to age better out of all the other guys. It was probably a toss up between Turner and Carlos Correa for their top two choices, but they really thought that Turner um, was a better fit and was going to age better. So he was the guy. So the Phillies have not been hesitant to spend. They now have the fourth highest projected payroll in baseball. And we talked about John Middleton's recent quote, his uh, celebrated quote about not <laughs> caring and no one cares whether he makes any money and he just wants to win, right? And and he's said some similar things like this in the past. The, the Phillies have ramped up their spending. And of course, uh, they're coming off winning a pennant and you would expect that there'd be some revenue boost coming from that. But is this... Middleton's mindset going back a bit? Is it a response to the team's situation and the fact that they really have had to spend to be competitive because some of their player development efforts didn't work out as well as they had wanted them to? Or is this the Dave Dombrowski effect of Dombrowski seemingly being an owner whisperer and uh, convincing owners to loosen the purse strings? I think this has everything to do with Dave Dombrowski. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that John Middleton wasn't someone who wanted to spend or win before. He he has, and he did before Dave Dombrowski came in. Recall, he signed Bryce Harper for $330 million, and Dombrowski wasn't here yet. But right. I think Dombrowski just unlocked John Middleton and the rest of ownership, the Buck family, their their, their minds to like what, what else is possible. You know, for forever, the Phillies did not exceed the luxury tax and they were they were not going to do it unless they, you know, unless as Middleton had been quoted in the past as saying, unless it was a, a move that could win us a world championship. And then all of a sudden last spring, it was, I guess it was right around this time, you know, when the lockout had been lifted, 
Um, you know, the Phillies signed Schwarber and they signed some relievers and they're, you know, getting close to that first threshold of luxury tax, but they're not going to go over. They never have. And all of a sudden they signed Nick Castellanos and Castellanos price had dropped. They felt like Dombrowski goes to ownership and says, this is a chance for us to pounce. It's going to require you to get into territory you've never been, but I feel like this can get us closer to a world championship. And they did it. And Dave Dombrowski is really good at convincing billionaires to let him spend their money. And I don't know what it is, but ownership has unequivocal faith in what Dombrowski does. And I feel like you have the perfect marriage of an owner and baseball operations head in Milton Dombrowski. And it has just created this, uh, this thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the Phillies are going to be, the Phillies are going to be spending like this, I think for the foreseeable future. I really do. And they've spent on Dave Dombrowski too, because his contract has been extended through 2027. And look, I mean, Dave Dombrowski, he uh, delivered a world series in Boston and then he comes and delivers a pennant in Philadelphia and, and say what you will about his attributes as a GM at this point in his career. But convincing owners to spend is just an incredible skill for an executive to have. So does that outweigh any long-term concerns about, hey, what does this do to the farm system? And, you know, is he just kind of looking for the extreme short-term because that's uh, what he's focused on and that's the kind of players that he tends to acquire at this point? Or is that kind of where Phillies fans are too? Like, hey, we've got this core and, and we got to make the most of it now. And who cares what happens in five or 10 years? I think what's impressive, Ben, is that like he really hasn't traded anybody. I mean, like he traded... He traded Logan Ohoppy, who is a, a really good catching prospect, who was never going to play in the majors for the Phillies because they have signed JT Realmuto to the contract that he has. And they traded him for another young player who just better fit positionally in Brandon Marsh. And I know there's people who do not did not like that trade at the time and still don't like it because they felt like that the Phillies should have gotten more for Ohoppy. But it was a trade in a sense. It wasn't Dombrowski just like unloading a prospect for like a, a, a an overpriced veteran, I guess, right? I mean, it was him getting a a younger player with six years of club control or five years of club control who better fit positionally and will be an everyday player on this, on the 2023 Phillies as well. So, I mean, look, he's held on to their top prospects, you know, like Andy Painter, uh, Griff McGarry, McAbel, their top three pitching prospects are still here. Uh, Johan Rojas, probably their best thing prospect still here. Um, the best prospects he's traded really since he's taken over the Phillies have been Logan O'Hoppy and I guess Ben Brown, who is kind of a pop-up guy. They traded him for Dave Robertson last deadline. That that was a deal that, I don't know, like, I guess it was okay. I mean, they won the National League pennant, so, you know, whatever. But he's he's held on to his guys. And, like, I think he's willing to, like, see that through. Like, I don't think they're going to trade any of those pitching prospects in the near future. I think they want to see those guys through. Well, and one of them who they absolutely did not trade and who's, who looks like he's going to have a big role in the big league club this year is Andrew Painter. So, you know, we want to give credit when the prospects do get held on to. What should Philly fans expect from Painter? And do you think that he is going to crack the opening day roster? I'm trying to be careful in the way that I write and talk about Andrew Painter because um, he's 19 and uh, he turns 20 in mid-April and it's not fair to overhype prospects. It's not fair to put huge expectations uh, on a pitcher, even if he's the best 19-year-old ever. He's still going to have, you know, some growing pains because that's just how it works in the sport. He's every bit the real deal, and like there is a there is a clear reason why they're pushing him and why they are, you know, have have left him left the door open for him. Not just left the door open. I mean, they've really just are holding the door open for him to win this fifth starter spot out of camp, and that's crazy. It's absolutely crazy that they've reached this point, but I wrote a story in the athletic earlier this spring about 
you know, the relationship and the trust that is really built because um, a, a coach that he worked with when he's, you know, when he's 14 years old uh, at Cressy Sports uh, over on the other side of Florida uh, is here with the Phillies. He's their director of pitching development. He's very highly regarded, Brian Kaplan. And they've spent a lot of time thinking about how to treat Andrew Painter and, you know, whether this is right for him, right for the franchise. And after all these meetings and these thoughts, and, you know, they really came to the decision that, that they want to see if he can do this. And whether or not he breaks camp with them, he's very clearly going to pitch for the 2023 Phillies and have a role and have some sort of meaningful role, I think, on this season. I can't wait to see what it looks like in a great Philly game, even though it's not even the biggest stage, not even close to it. But I can't wait to see it. I can't wait for other people to see it. It's not just because he throws really hard. He's really tall. He's 6'7", throws in the upper 90s. He just has such polish for a 19-year-old, both on the mound and off the field. He's been able to handle everything thrown out in the spring, and there is a lot of hype, and there's a lot of attention on him. Uh, it's been remarkable to watch. And there's been – the Phillies haven't had a teenager throw a pitch for them in a game since 1980. There's only been four since 1992 in the majors, which is crazy. Um, he's in rarefied territory right now, and, and I understand why. And we could maybe save Noah Song for a second and, and ask about him next. But other than the intrigue about Painter and whether he'll be a part of the rotation, there's not a, a ton of unsettled spots on the roster entering the spring. So other than that fifth starter battle, I mean, there are always uh, bullpen and bench spots up for grabs to some extent. But is there any other intriguing positional battle here or question about players who may or may not make it? Not really, Ben. I mean, they have, I don't, I can't ever remember the Phillies going into a spring with seven locks in their bullpen and mm-hmm. they have seven locks in their bullpen, which is crazy. Um, they really have two bench spots open. Um, they're going to rotate the DH. Bryce Harper is not going to be healthy to start the season. And when he returns in June or July, he'll be the DH. So I, I guess maybe the more, one of the more intriguing guys here is Derek Hall, uh, who was never really a prospect. And then a first baseman DH type who came up last year and just mashed when Bryce Harper was out, you know, really mashes righties. Uh, pretty limited in what he does, though. He only plays one position. He really can't face lefties, uh, but he's he's very good at hitting the ball far against righties. And so there's some questions about whether he makes the team or not, but uh, they plan to rotate the DH so that, that might hurt Hall's chances. Uh, other than that, no. Uh, I mean, it's a fifth starter spot. It's two bench spots and one bullpen spot. They just uh, they really want a healthy spring. They really would like the season to just start like now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, you mentioned how little of the bullpen is up for grabs, but I look at this bullpen, and obviously they have, you know, it anchored by Sir Anthony Dominguez and Jose Alvarado at the top. And then there feels like there's a lot of potential for it to either be amazing or truly terrifying for (laughs) Phillies fans, depending on what they get out of Kimbrel. They traded for Gregory Soto, who can be spectacular, but also incredibly walk-prone. So, uh, you know, they brought in Strom. What what should they expect and sort of how – conscious is that as a as a strategy for them because you know i can imagine them looking at it and saying look we're gonna we're probably gonna catch lightning in a bottle with one of these guys but who are the who are the guys who might fill in if if they have some implosions yeah i mean they're chasing big stuff that's dave dombrowski's thing and he's never been great great at building bullpens it's probably one of his you know one of his weaknesses over the years of building teams the bullpen they built to start last season looked very very different by the end of the season and I'm sure that there will be changes to this bullpen as they go. There's a little less flexibility in this one, although, you know, they signed, they spent $22 million total on Knable, Familia, and Hand. And by the end of the season, only Hand was pitching for them in the playoffs. And even then he was, you know, buried on the bullpen depth chart. So 
they've shown that they're willing to cut ties if something doesn't work in a, in a higher price guy. But yeah, they're chasing stuff. I mean, Kimbrell, he's embracing this idea that he will not be a closer, uh, a traditional closer. The Phillies don't plan on having a traditional closer. That's what they did last summer and fall. They just kind of, you know, played the matchups and, and, you know, they had a bunch of different guys who could close games. Connor Brogdon's really interesting to me. He had an outstanding postseason. I mean, was untouchable. He's a guy who's got great stuff, but just has never really had great confidence. Um, I think he gained a lot of confidence in the playoffs last year, and, and he'll be in this bullpen, and he's gonna have he's gonna have some big chances for them. Soto's not even here yet. Actually, he's the only guy who's not here. Um, he has had visa issues, and he's been uh, working out and throwing bullpens at the, the club's academy in the Dominican Republic. And he's supposed to pitch in WBC. I'm gonna guess that he doesn't because he's, he's just they're not gonna have time to actually look at him. So. And even in Dominguez and Alvarado, like there's a lot of unknown there. I mean, they signed both of them to extensions this spring. Right. Both of them had tremendous seasons for them last year, but Dominguez has a history of health problems. Alvarado, you know, made some real adjustments and became like one of the best lefty relievers in the sport, like out of nowhere in the middle of last year after being demoted. But, you know, you never know. Like even after all that, you're kind of like, can you trust him? I think they can, but you just don't know. So, yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of uh, volatility when trying to figure out what this bullpen's going to be. So here's the Noah Song question. So for, <laughs> for people who, who don't know the Noah Song backstory, he was drafted by the Red Sox in the fourth round in 2019. He only went that late because uh, there were concerns that he might not be able to pitch because of his naval service obligations. And that is uh, what happened. And so the Red Sox left him unprotected last year and the Phillies drafted him in the Rule 5 draft in December. They got him for a song, one could say, but he is now available to them because his uh, naval status was changed from active duty to selected reserves. And of course, as a rule five pick, he has to stick with the active roster all season or be returned unless you find some way to sort of hide him by inventing an injury or something as teams perhaps have in the past. But what does he have to show this spring to show that he would be worth carrying and could a contending team, I mean, a, a team that is trying to go back to the playoffs and go deep into the playoffs, can it carry on its roster a pitcher all season who hasn't pitched above low A and hasn't pitched professionally at all for a few years? You know, this is not a team that's just totally out of it and tanking and rebuilding and isn't going to win one way or another. Like the Phillies need productive players in those roster spots. The 2016 Phillies would have found a way to keep Noah Song. But <laughs> right. yeah, I, I Ben... I have no idea. And I I mean, there's no, there's literally no precedent for this in the modern era, maybe even like the history of baseball. I mean, because certainly guys went and served the country and then came back, but, you know, they had played in the majors or they, you know, were, uh, didn't miss three years or, you know, yeah, had been above rookie ball. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and, and had more than five weeks to make a, a major league team and didn't have to stay on the roster all year. So I think this is unprecedented. And so I, I have no idea what's going to happen. He said he thinks he threw off a mound once in the last three years, and that was about a week ago. And, <laughs> I mean, he's in great shape. I mean, like, sure. he served his country. He was a naval flight officer. He is in tremendous shape, it appears. He's not in pitching shape, obviously. His arm isn't. So they're going to take it slow with him here. And, I, I mean, no. Like, I don't think he's going to make this team. I, I mean, I, I don't know how he would make this team. I, I just don't see how it would – I don't think it can happen, but there's so many different scenarios. I mean, yes, he could get hurt as he ramps up. They could, I, you know, ostensibly if he shows enough, like, and it's just too much of a project, maybe there's another team that would trade for him and then keep him the whole year, like a, a rebuilding team. 
I don't know, but like he's so interesting, Ben, because he was, and I've talked to people who saw him in those seven games he pitched for Lowell, uh, his first professional year with the Red Sox, and there were people who were going to write him up as big league ready at some point in 2020, and he pitched in 2019 at Lowell. I mean, it was polished. It was really good. And he's 25 now, and he hasn't pitched in three years. And who knows? Like, even Dave Dombrowski is like, I don't know what's going to happen when he gets on the mound and throws. Is it going to be 85 or 95 miles an hour? I don't know. And I don't think Noah Song knows either. He says, I'm kind of curious to see what my future ceiling is now, too, because I don't know what it is. It's a fun story. Like, and, I, and I, I've been impressed, like, how many people are, like, have kind of latched onto it. And I guess it is because it is somewhat unprecedented. Because he was, you know, a, a really decent prospect before he went into the, to the Navy, and and because I, I feel like people are love the idea of Dombrowski pulling one over the Red Sox, which I know <laughs> that the Red Sox are like not so crazy about it, and I also know that they're going to be paying really close attention to how the Phillies handle Song this spring. You know, if there is a quote unquote injury, they're going to be asking a lot of questions to the league office about it, like what you know. Where's the documentation? Like, what actually happened? And so, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that it's a really cool story, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked about some of the prospects who might find their way into the rotation. We've talked about some of the free agent additions just generally. But I want to ask about where the team is with Aaron Nola and a potential contract extension. Because this offseason, they signed Taiwan Walker. They obviously have Ranger Suarez there. We don't know what will happen with the fifth starter spot. But it seems impossible that they will let Nola go. But they have not been able to get an extension done yet. Where do they stand with that? Right, Meg. So I wrote and reported earlier this spring that they've, they're talking, they've exchanged yeah. offers, and I think there's some optimism that they can get a deal done this spring. They really hadn't, you know, I don't think the two sides really talked until maybe a little before spring training started. Nola actually got married on New Year's Eve, and like, you know, I think they were, they had other business to attend to, and they're like, let's just get to this, you know, closer to spring training or in spring training. It's kind of the time of year where you do this thing. Um, Nola told me that like he wants to, you know, if, if the season starts and he doesn't have a deal, he wants to take it to free agency, and that makes total sense. A lot of guys don't like negotiating during the year. You know, like I, I look at the Carlos Rodon deal as sort of a baseline, and you could argue that Nola should get, you know, more than Rodon. Uh, he's got a, a better track record. I think he's about a, I think he's about a year younger. I guess he'd be about the same age once he gets to free agency than Rodon, but a year younger right now. Guys made the most starts in the major leagues since the start of the 2018 season, most innings pitched in the major leagues. There is a lot of value in durability. And I, I know for a while that, that, you know, innings eaters or workhorses weren't exactly like the most uh, valued thing in the sport, but I do think it's, it is trending a little bit back that way. And um, Noel isn't just a workhorse. I mean, he is often elite at what he does. Um, he's just not flashy. And a lot of people don't necessarily know, notice that, but you know, the knock on him was that he fought, you know, uh, wilted at the end of seasons and, and he really changed that narrative last year last September he was outstanding for them he came up huge in the big moments early in the postseason he was outstanding for them he wasn't great uh, late in the LCS and then the World Series is just so-so I think the the long year really did catch up to him but I think something gets done I think it's going to be a uh, it would be a big number to get done though it's not like he's going to take a discount here I mean he's he's you know essentially seven eight months away from uh, a pretty you know big payday, I think, in free agency. So he really likes it here. He's a pretty simple guy. They've worked, they've done an extension before, you know, uh, before he reached arbitration years, uh, they did an extension. So I, I think that they, they can get something done, but um, they've got about uh, five weeks now to, to get it done before the season starts. I wanted to ask a, a couple outfield and offense uh, questions here in the same question. So 
Nick Castellanos did not provide the thump that he was asked to last season. So is there a hope that his bat will rebound in his second season with the Phillies? And then related, you mentioned Bryce Harper looking at June or July for him to return at least as a DH. Is the expectation that his bat should be basically back up to full strength by that point? And then is there a hope that he could play some defense at some point this season? Yeah, I'll start with Bryce. I think... Yes, that is the hope that eventually he gets back to right field. I, I don't know when that would be. Like, I feel like it would be pretty late in the season. You know, we're talking August, September, maybe more like September. I think, yes, the idea would be that he doesn't get on a major league field and isn't activated unless, you know, he fo- feels like he can fully swing a bat and there's no restrictions there. It would just be that he would have to ramp up a throwing program after having Tommy John surgery. So, you know, he hit all last year with a torn UCL um, and he wasn't yeah. able to play the field. So, I think there's confidence, and there actually is precedent. I mean, Otani had had a similar timeline on his, you know, and he came back as a DH only and then progressed into uh, back into pitching. So, yeah, I, I think he would be, you know, full go in terms of hitting around June or July, and I hope we get him back out there and, you know, maybe August, September in right field. And then Castellanos, uh, I don't know. You know, I think there were a lot of things at play last year. He certainly, uh, he signed late. His wife had a baby uh, early in the year, and it, and it and he just never felt like he was settled. Uh, and he's a guy who I've come to understand is really, that matters a lot to him. Like his surroundings and like feeling comfortable, like that is important. And he was did not feel that way last year for numerous reasons. And I think he feels a lot more comfortable this spring. I would be surprised if he was as unproductive as he was last year, but I, I don't know if he ever gets back to being, you know, like prime Nick Castellanos. And, you know, last year was was not good. I mean, even if you get, you know, maybe if you get 80% of prime Nick Castellanos, you'll be happy. I mean, last year was, I don't know, like it was a 95 OPS plus. I mean, he was, he was, uh, he was below replacement level last year. I mean, he was not good. And so you look at his track record, you're like, well, even if he can get back to being just like a slightly above average uh, hitter in the majors, like, yeah, I mean, obviously you're paying him for, to do more than that, but even just that boost would really help this team. Uh, because he will bat, you know, a little lower in the lineup, and there's a lot of really good guys around him. So we'll see. Not ready to pronounce like a huge comeback year for Castellanos. He will turn 31 in a week, and things there's things working against him. The opposite, the, the lack of power to the opposite field, the changes in the ball, and the, the you know the run scoring environment, the game that definitely uh, and, and and fewer and fewer fastballs being thrown. All those global trends are definitely working against him. When you were talking about the 2022 turnaround earlier, you listed all of the additions and, and changes on the field and player turnover, et cetera. And then almost as an afterthought, you said, oh, and of course, they changed the manager, right? So <laughs> is that kind of the correct hierarchy of apportioning credit to that turnaround that going from Joe Girardi to Rob Thompson is uh, just sort of secondary to the changes that they made on the field? Or, I mean, obviously, it's uh, impossible to quantify and, and separate the, the credit exactly. But I wonder just how big a change that was to the clubhouse, to the way the team was run, you know, more so even than strategically, but just to the vibes, basically. Like, was Rob Thompson the perfect person for this squad? And did that play a big part in that turnaround? I don't know if it was secondary. I don't want to minimize it because it was pretty important. I think really what, what it's a weird thing, right? I mean, like, I think really when this team came together and realized, you know, how good they could be and also like how important the manager was, when, was when Bryce Harper broke his thumb in late June. 
you know, they had already gotten a boost when Thompson took over in early June. They won the first nine games that Thompson managed, and it was like everyone's like, oh, wow, like, look what the manager did. And, you know, okay, maybe there's a little bit to that. But where they really came together was the two months that Bryce missed, and you had numerous people step up. It was different guys. It was some depth guys that, you know, frankly, in the past, Phillies had not gotten contributions from on, on the roster, you know, spots 20 to 26 or, you know, whatever, something like that. But they really played well without Bryce Harper, and I think it emboldened them and it made them realize that they can do this and that Andrew had a, had a calming effect. He's uh, a different personality than Joe Girardi was, despite you know Girardi being one of his best friends and having spent majority of his time in baseball with Girardi. Thompson was a big deal. Like, he really was. And uh, he's just got this way about him that players gravitate. They trust him. They will run through a wall for him. He's not a big rah-rah guy, uh, but he, he – uh, he he let these guys relax and 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 be calm and and you know I think the entire franchise like there was a cloud lifted when they when they finally clinched that playoff spot. I mean it had been a decade and all these guys heard about and you know and rightfully so is all the collapses in September and all the failures and all how long it had been since they'd been in the playoffs and are they going to collapse again? And for a while in September it kind of looked like they were going to yeah. and had the Brewers not falling on their face. Maybe the Phillies don't even make the playoffs. But once they clinched that playoff spot, you know, with two days left in the season, a cloud was lifted and everyone just, the whole franchise, I mean, like it was like, okay, we found, we did it. Now let's go see what we can do with this opportunity. And now that they tasted it and people saw what it was like at Citizens Bank Park and it was unbelievable, the atmosphere, they just want to get back. And it's like an addicting feeling for all of these guys. And Thompson is, is the right guy for this team right now. And it's crazy because as I wrote after the season last year, I mean, he had planned for last year to be his final year in baseball. <laughs> he, he told people going into the year that this was it and he was at peace with it. And then he's managing a team in a World Series and he gets a new contract and here we are. So if we took their offseason in a vacuum, you might think, wow, this team is definitely primed to win their division, cruise into the postseason, <laughs> but they happen to play in one of the hardest divisions in baseball. So I'm curious what your sense is of sort of where they view themselves within the hierarchy of the East and, you know, kind of how aggressive you imagine they might be over the course of the season to supplement if they need to, if they fall behind the Mets and the Braves. I would say they think that they're closer than most of the projection systems have it. I don't know if you're going to find anyone who's going to be like, yeah, we're the best team. I mean, okay. I don't know if you're going to, players are going to say it. Like, I don't know if you, right. Yeah. I don't, right. Yeah. I don't know if you're going to find anyone who would say, yeah, we're definitely the best team in this division. I mean, I, it's, it's a, it's a good division. I mean, I think, you know, they won 87 games and I think some people in the front office and in the clubhouse have taken exception to that saying, well, you know, the team that finished the season and went in the playoffs was not an 87-win team. It was better than that. And I'll right. buy that. There were real changes that we can point to. But to get, you know, the winner of the division last year had more than 100 wins. And to, you know, have a 13 to 14-win jump from season to season, that would require a lot, especially when we're up in the higher echelon here. You know, we're already talking about high 80s-win teams. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting how this division unfolds, I think. I think it's totally reasonable to have them as third right now. I do. I, I mean, I think I think the other two teams, I think, have, have better rosters. I also think this is, on paper, like probably one of the best rosters the Phillies have ever had. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, and I think people have looked at me with a raised eyebrow when I say that. It's a it's a really good roster. I mean, like, and the bullpen, I think there are questions, no doubt, and, like, the rotation, they have to stay healthy, no doubt. But they have assembled a really good roster. I almost feel like Turner, because he signed so early, and – you know, you saw the numbers and like, okay, okay, okay. 
like, I don't know, it's almost being undersold. I mean, Trey Turner is mm-hmm. really good. He's like one of the yeah. probably 10 best players in baseball, and you're just throwing mm-hmm. him into the top of this lineup, and he's like the perfect fit on and off the field. And Andy Painter, like, might be, you know, one of the best, if not the best prospects in baseball. Like, he might break camp with the Phillies. And I, you know, again, he's not going to be a superstar right away, but they think he's they think he's pretty good. And, and, and there's other people who think he's pretty good too, so... I think they look at it and they say that they're we're closer to the Braves and Mets probably than than the than most of the projection systems have us and most of the public perception has us. Uh, but I think they're also well aware that this is uh, this is a tough division and finishing third, you know, may not be what they want, but it also may not be you know it's not like anything to to scoff at because finishing third in this division, you know, very well may get you in the playoffs again. And I think the balanced schedule helps uh, to get three teams from the East again back into the postseason as there was last year. You know, now would they prefer to not have to play that three game series, especially on the road, the wild card series again? Yeah, probably. I mean, let's do you guys remember the first game in St. Louis, the playoff game? Yes. I mean, <laughs> if it's not for that crazy ninth inning, like the Phillies probably don't leave St. Louis. Like they probably are eliminated there. And like yeah. the Cardinals aura lives on. And I don't know. I mean, man, I still can't believe that happened. I still can't believe <laughs> yeah. the entire playoffs happened. And it's uh, it's it's amazing. It really is. So we end all these segments by asking our guests to basically define a successful season and lay out what the goal should be for the team. And that could be measured by the ultimate result or any individual player's progress or progress in the farm system, whatever criteria the team should be looking at or or fans should be thinking about to evaluate how the season goes. Obviously, if you're coming off a pennant winning season, then a success is winning the World Series, right, as it is for anyone, I suppose but only one team can actually win a World Series. So that would be a a harsh criterion to use to to decide whether this was a successful season for the Phillies or not. So, you know, I think they, after that surprising success, they didn't rest on their laurels. They go get Turner, they get Taiwan Walker, they get Kimbrell, they get Soto and on and on. And they're kind of loaded for bear at this point. So what would be a successful 2023 season for the Phillies? I can't wait to get crushed by the front office when they actually, when some people hear this, because I know they will listen. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I think, I don't know, winning the pennant again? I don't know. I mean, it's just like... <sighs> it's almost like, I mean, you know, like... Uh, I don't know. That, I, that happens uh, after the postseason starts, uh, you know, it's like, yes, it, yeah. teams will be judged by, by how they do, but it's also like there's just no way to predict it and there's only so much you can do to ensure success at that point. So, you know, you could say with almost any team, like, well, making the playoffs because after that, who the heck knows, you know, the, the 2020 Phillies. Yeah, I got it. it. I think I got yeah. it. I think I got okay. it. Having home field advantage in the NLCS. Mm. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> normally the normally the record question caused consternation, but I think you're the first person on one of these previews to sound genuinely just stressed about what <laughs> well, constitutes a successful I mean, season. It's, yeah, it's tough to tap how down. last year yeah. ended. Yeah. I mean, how how do you yeah, I mean it's never gonna feel like it did last October. And like that's okay. But it's never gonna feel like it did last October. And yeah, I'll go with having home field advantage in the NLCS. Maybe that's kind of a cop out, but you're right. I mean, once the playoffs start, it's like, you know, how can you fault them for, you know, losing a short series when, you know, even if they were the better team and the better, uh, you know, right. so I'll yeah. stick with that. 
and in this division, it's tough to say winning the division should be the thing you judge this team by because, you know, the Phillies could have a pretty good successful season and, and still finish behind the Braves and or the Mets. So it's it's a, a tough one to answer. But yeah, I like you threaded the needle there, I think. All right. Well, you can follow the Phillies all season long at The Athletic by reading Matt. And of course, you can find him on Twitter at his name, Matt Gelb. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Ben and Meg. Great to be on, as always. And I've been enjoying the previews. Thank you. All right. We'll take another quick break now, and we'll be back with a team that is sort of on the opposite end of the ownership spectrum when it comes to money being no object. All we want to do is win, but is pretty intriguing nonetheless, the Baltimore Orioles. We will be joined by Nathan Ruiz of the Baltimore Sun in just a moment. Tell me, sister, where your true love Well, we move now from the NL East to the AL East and from the team with the fourth highest projected payroll to the second lowest projected payroll. The sun sign has been stripped from center field at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, but the Baltimore Sun will still be represented at the park this season by Nathan Ruiz, who covers the Orioles for the Baltimore Sun and is joining us now. Hello, Nathan. Hey, Ben. Thanks for starting off with a bit of a sore spot. Really appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. As a Sun employee, were you sad to see the Sun sign go? Uh, It was something that had been reported last year as a possibility, so it's something we were aware of. I was more disappointed that it like happened at the end of a work day for me out here in Florida. Like I was done with my day, I was ready to move on and all of a sudden, you know, that comes out and I have to throw some other things in motion. But it's gonna definitely gonna be weird, you know, looking up there and not seeing seeing the sun. I know a lot of Orioles fans are gonna feel the same way. Yeah. So I think they will probably be mollified somewhat if the Orioles have uh, another exciting season. So I guess that leads me to my first question here, which is a a big picture one. I mean, the Orioles won 31 more games last season than they did in 2021. A lot of things went right in order for that to happen. They stayed very healthy. They promoted great prospects. uh, Some holdover players made some strides. And so as an MLB.com piece pointed out in December, I think they were the 14th team in the divisional area to gain 27 or more wins compared to the preceding season. And of the previous 13 teams to do that, I think 12 won fewer games the following season, often by double digits. So that's kind of classic regression to the mean or the Bill James plexiglass principle in action. And the only team to defy that trend was the 1992 Braves, which won four more games than the 91 Braves team that went worst to first and won the pennant. So I'm sure the Orioles would like to think that they are positioned for a 90s Braves style dominant run. But is that the case? I guess focusing on 2023 specifically, maybe you can make the cases for, yes, this team is going to take a step back because of uh, X and Y, and the alternative case for, no, this team is going to buck the trend because of uh, Z and some other letter of the alphabet. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You can really see a, a whole spectrum of, of possibilities here for them. And you know, part of that is that they didn't really do much this offseason. Now, relatively speaking, compared to what they've done in past few years, this was a great offseason. They signed some guys. They spent some money. Relatively speaking, they made some buy-side trades, which we really haven't seen them done at all. And so now you look at it, and you've got some veteran pieces, 
and he's got this young core that they've been building for the last several years. Obviously, you've got Adley, Gunner, Grayson, like CL. The name, the list of names can go on and on and on. And so if all those guys, you know, are what you, they hope them to be, and if the players who kind of broke out and became key pieces for them last year, especially some of the pitchers, you look at the steps forward that Dean Kramer took, you look at what Kyle Bradish was in the second half, you look at what they got at the back end of the bullpen with Felix Batista, Brian Baker, Sinal Perez, who kind of were all unheralded guys who came out of nowhere and had great seasons. It, you can start to see the makings of a pretty competitive team. And, and obviously we saw that last year, but uh, there is some questions about, did they do enough this offseason? Are all those players going to continue to take steps forward? Are some of those players who broke out last year going to take steps back? So I think there's definitely a wide range of possibilities for this team. I, I think the moves they made this offseason, you know, raised the floor a little bit. I think they protected against some of those steps back, but I don't know that they necessarily did enough in terms of raising this team's ceiling. John Angelos spoke to the media recently. This probably isn't the last time that that we will invoke the name of John Angelos in this previous segment, although unusual for him to talk at all. (laughs) And maybe he's talking too much, if anything, because when he says (laughs) stuff, it, it tends not to go great. But you keyed in on a specific thing he said where he started to say, now we all know this year could, and then he kind of cut himself off and said, who knows what'll happen this year? So it sort of sounds as if he was uh, headed for saying that maybe this season would not be as successful wins-wise as last season's was, or that things could take a step back in some areas. And you noted that Michael Elias said that the team's internal projections have exceeded the public projection systems. Now, you never really hear team officials say the opposite, <laughs> right? Like, oh, wow, Pakoda really likes our team a lot more than we do. That's weird. That right. never seems to happen. <laughs> but is that why they didn't spend so much this offseason? I mean, again, relatively, maybe it was more than nothing, but it was not nearly as much as it could have been. And, and even Angelus acknowledged as much by saying, you know, our payroll could be twice as high. Sure. You know, and he he kind of fobbed it off on Elias and, and saying basically he's just following their recommendations of, of baseball operations and trying to stay out of the way. But one way to ward off regression would be to spend and add some players, right? So it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy if you think, oh, this team is going to take a step back so we won't spend. Well, then it's more likely to take a step back. So how much did that dictate their strategy this offseason? Yeah, I think self-fulfilling prophecy was the exact phrase I was going to use. It's, <laughs> it's something where if this team takes a step forward, you can say, look how smart we were. We had this young core of guys. We believed in them, and we believed there'd be progress, and look at us, we're in the playoffs. But if it doesn't work out, then you can say, oh, well, clearly we were right that it was ahead of schedule last year, and we weren't really as good as maybe we came off, which that also has been said. It was said last year by Michael Elias at the trade deadline, basically pointing to their playoff odds as a reason for trading away Trey Mancini. It was said the other day by John Angelos, where he openly said the 2022 team overachieved and overperformed, which is is a fine viewpoint. It's definitely a reasonable viewpoint. But to come out and say it outright uh, as the owner of the team is certainly a stance to take. And it, it shows that that is potentially the internal mindset of this organization at this point, that they had a 31-win improvement last season that had some pro premier, so to speak, with it. And so I think when they I don't think I use that idiom right at all, so I apologize. But <laughs> that's just to say that... Smoke and mirrors, cloak and dagger. Yeah, yeah smoke, cloak, similar enough. But that's all to say that yeah. like there are aspects of last season's team that you could point to and be like, well, how, how real was that? And obviously, you've got aspects that you really believe in, like Adley Rutschman. You've got aspects like the bullpen that, you know, there's not a lot of track records there. And they did what they could to supplant some of those areas. 
in the off season, but it, there's definitely the question of could they have done more? And based off John Angelo's comments, the, the answer should have been yes. I guess we can start with Rutschman just as we pivot to the actual um, p- sources of potential improvement or or sustaining the record they had last year. It feels weird to ask, like, what more could Adley Rutschman do? <laughs> because I know he didn't end up winning AL Rookie of the Year, but it's hard to have a better season than he did. But what are their expectations for him going into his sophomore campaign? Yeah, I mean, I think you look at one obvious area of improvement would just be getting a full season of him. That'll be great for the team. I uh, had a, you know, this time last year, he was in minor league camp, wasn't yet on the 40-man roster. And then right as things came out of the lockout, he hurt his triceps and they missed him for the first 40 games in the year. And when you miss the playoffs by three games, there were eight games under 500 with him, not on the roster. Like there's going to be a lot of value in getting more Adley Rutschman. You hope that as he moves farther away from that injury, he'll be catching a little more frequently. They're understandably very cautious with him coming out of that injury in his rookie year. You look at it, they, they played at a 96-win pace with him as their starting catcher and a 69-win pace with someone else back there. So there's obviously a lot of value in having him back there. I think if you just look at areas of improvement for him, he's a switch hitter who didn't have a ton of success against left-handed pitching, so had some struggles from the right side. I think that's an area of improvement for him. Uh, also, I think that there's as he gets older and stronger, I think he put a lot of work in this offseason. It, it became kind of a running bit of how many doubles he was hitting, so an Orioles rookie record for, for doubles in the season. But I think some of those becoming home runs would obviously be an obvious step up for him. And obviously, there's a lot of talent there, and immensely talented players, the guy who makes this team go. And, and so any, anything extra they can get out of the Rutschman beyond what they got last season, we really appreciate it. And then the guy who took over the mantle of top prospect in baseball from Adley Rutschman and, and still holds it, although he has already made his debut and, and showed why he holds it, that's Gunnar Henderson. So what more can he do? Is it just uh, what he did last season, but over a full schedule? Or are there strides they're hoping he will make? And is he going to settle in at third base for now? And, and what's his outlook there? Yeah, I think, again, the, the left-handed pitching aspect with him, he, they was, that was pointed to as part of the reason that they kept him in the minors as long as they did, is they wanted to see some improvement left on left. Now, obviously, there are a bunch of other factors in keeping him down as long as they did, and the at-bats timed out perfectly with that, to where he enters the season, as you mentioned, still prospect eligible, still rookie of the year eligible, and creating some opportunities for them in that regard. Um, I think that's something that they want, but I think just the benefit of having both Adley and Gunner for a whole season will go a long way for this team. You, you look at what they dealt with last year, the first 40 games. wasn't a great catching situation. Uh, Adley Rutschman's backup, Robinson Torinos, most of the year. He was a really valued clubhouse presence, but he wasn't a guy who did a whole lot in terms of what was happening on the field. The infield mix uh, had, had a lot of fluctuation. Ruben Odor wasn't exactly a, a, you know, a, a bounce-back piece that they maybe hoped he would be when they signed him. Uh, so a full year of Gunner on the left side of the infield. He did play some second base. Last season in the majors, played a little first base in the minors, just they kind of prepared him for a possible role in the majors. I think we'll see him stick to the left side of the infield. Brandon Hyde at the winter meeting said that he actually, you know, felt bad for, for doing that to Gunner. He, he wouldn't have done it again in hindsight, just thrusting him onto the right side of the field. So obviously the, the Orioles have Jorge Mateo, who is the Fielding Bible Award winner at shortstop. Didn't get the gold glove recognition, wasn't even a finalist, but he's, you know, one of the best defensive shortstops in baseball, made a lot of flashy plays. Does a lot of things right. Obviously, the offense is a question, but I think you'll see as the Orioles kind of have this infield rotation with those two, Adam Frazier, Ramon Urias, they'll kind of move those guys around, and I think you'll see a lot of gunner at both short and third, and, and over the course of the season, that can change as, as some of these other guys come up. Right, and one of those other guys being Joey Ortiz, who's a, another top 100 guy. So how do they hope that that left side, at least of the infield, sorts out long-term? I mean, do they want 
Ortiz to be the long-term shortstop or Henderson? Is he the hot corner guy? Like, is there a preference or a thought for whose glove plays better at which position? Well, I think they're going to try to figure this all out as they go. I think one thing that surprised me and as it it gets back to the offseason was they not only have those two guys, they have Jordan Westberg, who can play all three infield spots. They have Connor Norby, who's primarily second baseman. They have Kobe Mayo, end of the year in double A. He's a third baseman. They have a lot of infield talent coming, and that's not even mentioning Jackson Holiday last year's number one overall pick. So they have a plethora of options. They did end up, you know, trading away the guy who was basically their seventh or eighth best infield prospect in Daryl Hernandez to get Cole Irvin and Kyle Verbitsky from Oakland. And so they did make a move. They did pull from an area of strength to improve their major league team, but it wasn't necessarily in the way that I think people thought they did. I think it's a surprise that all these guys are now in major league camp and, and still in this organization, but it, it gives the Orioles the opportunity to kind of see what they have in each of them and, and explore that. I think in terms of Joey Ortiz, uh, he's always been a great glove guy. I think if you ask most people who have seen him, Jordan Westberg, and Gunner, Joey's pretty far and away considered the best shortstop of the group. And that's saying something given how talented those other two guys are. It, the offense was a big question. And then you look at him last year from, from July on, posted an OPS over 1,000. And that wasn't just like a hot streak that came out of nowhere. There was an actual adjustment. There was a movement of the hands. There's a cause and effect to it. So I think that he really established himself. And you've seen that in prospect rankings throughout the winter, just that there is this view that this guy is legitimate. So I think Gunner can handle shortstop long term, but I think if you're looking at what the best defensive alignment is, it would definitely be Joey at short, Gunner Henderson at third, and and you'd be pretty happy with that in the long run. I guess we can just keep the prospect train going because, gosh, do they have a lot of guys who we should all be excited about. I want to pivot to a bit of the pitching now and start with D.L. Hall. First ask what his status is. I know he was a bit delayed starting uh, camp because of a, a back injury, and then what what you view his ultimate role being on the roster. Yeah, I haven't seen him throw a bullpen yet. So he's still working his way back in a progression. They do view him as a starter in camp. So obviously that requires a bit more of a buildup before he's, he's actually doing anything. So until there's a little more progress there, it's going to be hard to see him making this team's opening day rotation. But it's, it's definitely a fascinating case. Obviously, he's had the questions about control, but there's never been really any questions about the stuff. Like you could argue if you paired him up pitch by pitch with Grayson Rodriguez, who's one of the top pitching prospects in baseball, that, that DL has better stuff. There's obviously just the question of putting it in the strike zone. And, you know, I've talked with DL a lot about how he views himself, how others view him. And it's really interesting to hear kind of how his perspective has changed over the years. And in talking with him last year, he referred to it as, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, throw balls, I don't walk people, I just am chasing strikeouts. And to hear him this year, like referring back to last season's release um, experience and, and what he did at the end of the season, which was really effective out of the Orioles bullpen in these shorter stints as they try to manage his innings, he, you know, felt that it wasn't that it was, you know, I, I don't walk guys. I was chasing strikeouts. It was, oh, I'm not aggressive enough. Like I get passive sometimes. I don't trust my stuff on her percent of the time. And that to me feels like a, a, a step forward, a growth, um, a change in mindset that can speak to what he can possibly be. And so I think when you look at it, just the natural talent, like you'd love to see him be a starter. Like the idea of him and Grayson topping this team's rotation for the years to come, like it's, it's something that's understandably really exciting. And the Orioles want to be cognizant of that. Like their ideal world is that he is a starting pitcher for them. But when you look at what he did at the end of the season, what the stuff is, I think if you know the worst case outcome is like a Josh Hader type reliever, like right. you definitely take that too. So I think they'll, they'll see how it goes. This is a big year for him just in kind of figuring that all out. 
And I guess now we can talk about Rodriguez, who is still thought of very highly, but, you know, dealt with injury again last year. And I think, you know, the consensus among the scouting community was that his stuff had backed up a little bit, as had his conditioning, but that he is still, you know, a a frontline starter for a contending team. What do you think the timeline is in terms of when he will be in the Orioles rotation to stay? I think as of now, it's hard to not see him in it opening day again with like the, the gunner rookie of the year situation. I think the Orioles want to give themselves as many, you know, you know, shots at the dartboard, so to speak. I think they really like what they have in Grayson. He would have been up in the majors probably pretty soon after the injury if, if it hadn't happened. And so that was in early June. He missed three months with the latch strain. Uh, he came back. Obviously, there were some questions, but he felt really good. The team felt really good. Uh, he threw a live BP the other day, and Brandon Hyde said the velo was there. The stuff is there. Uh, so I think they're really excited about him. He's going to get every opportunity, I think, to make this team out of camp, not only because of the, the ways that would benefit the Orioles organizationally with the extra draft pick possibility, but just in terms of what that would do for their rotation. You know, I think one big disappointment about this offseason was just that they didn't go out and get that top of the rotation starter. But that's that's exactly what Dale Hall and Grayson Rodriguez are going to develop into. And so I think when you have that guy, if he's, if he's what they hope he is, and obviously there's going to be some innings limits and some questions with that. But if he's what they hope he is and what they think he is, they'll, they'll be really excited to have him in their rotation throughout the whole year. Yeah, I guess technically they did get top of the rotation starters. They just wouldn't be top of the rotation right. starters for most rotations. <laughs> but maybe we could talk about the rest of that Orioles rotation in addition to Rodriguez and potentially Hall because they did go and get Kyle Gibson, Cole Irvin. Then you have some holdovers like Kyle Bradish, Dean Kramer, and I guess you've got John Means on the comeback trail returning from his April 2022 Tommy John surgery. So can you talk about the guys they acquired, what the thinking was with Irvin, with Gibson, and then where Means stands and if there's anyone else in this mix uh, who might be expected to take a step forward? Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting group, which is more than what you could say about most Orioles rotation competitions at this time of year in most recent seasons. So you've, you've got Kyle Gibson and Cole Irvin. You know, Gibson gets the largest free agent deal in Elias era history, which is not that long, but it's significant. They spent $10 million to get him on a one-year deal, basically choosing over giving $11 million to Jordan Lyles, who was a big part of last season's rotation. And they feel like that's an upgrade. They feel like he's a guy who, as they look forward, as they look at projections, that he can bring a lot to them um, on the mound. He has a lot of experience. He's an innings eater, uh, which they seem to love based on getting him and Cole Irvin. Uh, that said, you look at both him and Cole Irvin, like they're, they're not exactly, as you said, they're not top of the rotation starters. Most other places, these guys have been average to below average in most seasons of their career. Um, but they like, Again, they like the floor they provide. They feel like in terms of the Kyle Bradishes, the Dean Kramers, the Grayson Rodriguez, the D.L. Halls, they have a lot of upside in the other spots of the rotation. They're able to get a couple of solid starters out of those two guys and have them around for a whole season to make, you know, 31, 32, 33 starts. There's a lot of value in that for a team that, that has some guys who are going to be pitching a lot more innings. You look at their incumbent group of starters, Dean Kramers, Dean Kramer threw a little more than 125 innings in the majors last year. And that kind of leads the group. And he had an injury at the start of the year. But you look at what he was after he came back, uh, just really impressive, especially when you look at his 2021 season. Just uh, all of our interviews with him were over Zoom. But he just you could tell how the season was, was dragging on him. He just he was getting beat up. Um, he, he wasn't happy. And he got sent down to the major or sent out to AAA and spent most of the rest of the year there after a particularly rough outing against the Blue Jays. So, uh, But then for him to come back and really build on it the way he did, end of the year, you know, 
with a shutout against the Astros. There's a lot of value in that arm. They're really excited about him. Uh, Kyle Bradish is another guy who kind of did a similar thing of having a, an adjustment. His was in midseason, uh, landed on the IL with a shoulder issue um, midseason and had really struggled to that point in his big league career. Comes back, makes some adjustments. Really kind of modeled himself after Corbin Burns in a lot of ways. Uh, moved where he was on the mound, added a sinker to his mix, and, and really took off from there. Also had a great outing, did a couple outings against the Astros. Uh, they got a couple other guys in Austin both and Tyler Wells, who are both big parts of last year's rotation, uh, who, unlike those two guys, didn't quite end the season as strongly, but had really good starts. They're right in the mix, too. So they've got a lot of options, which is nice to have. You know, Brandon Hyde keeps saying, you, you ask, whenever you ask him a question about, oh, well, this competition, that competition, you know, he always says, as any manager would, it's good to have depth. I'm curious, you know, as you're giving your answers, as we're thinking through this roster, the sort of macro level roster machinations, the service time considerations, the budget seems very front and center and is obviously being talked about in pretty bare terms by team leadership. I'm curious, you know, as you're there in camp and sort of interacting with the players, like, what is your sense of both their awareness of that as a consideration for how the team is being constructed and probably will be constructed as the season progresses. And then just, you know, what impact is that having on them as guys who are there and want to win and want to prove themselves in a competitive division? I think that that's the big thing is in that room, they all want to win. They, they all see themselves as young and energetic and a team that's capable of making the playoffs. Like I don't, they're not, I haven't really gotten engaged that they're that concerned on uh, on that front. And obviously, it's disappointing. And, you know, Michael Elias made some comments, like I mentioned, at, at last year's trade deadline that, that ruffled some feathers, and he came down to Texas and talked with them about it. And, and so I think the players are, have always, though, been very cognizant of this process. Um, you know, talking to guys, they, they knew what they were in for, and they embraced the opportunity that was in front of them. And now that a lot of these young guys are in, are in the room, they're excited for the future. They're happy that it's here. They're happy that they're talking about playoffs instead of another rough season. They're happy that they have these expectations about what they can be. And obviously, it would be nice if there was more backing of that um, at an organizational level. But in terms of what's happening in the clubhouse and what's happening on the team level, uh, they're all excited for the season. They talk about how young and energetic. And yeah, I think they're really just looking forward to things, which is a credit to them and a credit to the coaching staff. And obviously the Orioles have followed an Astros-esque model, which is not surprising given their leadership being largely composed of ex-Astros people. And thus far, they seem to be following that blueprint fairly effectively, right? And the Astros uh, at some point started to ramp up their spending. The Orioles have not yet. And as you noted, John Angelos, when he sort of laid out what he wants the Orioles to be, he kind of comped them to the Brewers, the Guardians, the Rays, right, when it comes to sustainability, et cetera, and didn't actually, I guess, invoke the Astros, who, you know, have uh, been winning divisions and winning World Serieses, and also there's other stuff that goes along with the Astros. But I ask because, you know, reading uh, Evan Drellick's recent book, Winning Fixes Everything, in which some of the current Orioles executives are, are mentioned, and there's just a lot in there about how, you know, they really weren't inclined to spend and they weren't inclined to bring in players from outside the organization and they wanted to spend as little as possible and still win. And so I wonder whether the Orioles will. I mean, you know, is this offseason a sign of things to come or is it premature to say that they won't spend at some point? Yeah, I think it's hard to say. And, and you know, obviously both Michael Elias and John Angelos have hinted at increasing payroll over time. Uh, it's disappointing that it didn't happen more. Obviously, that will kind of happen naturally when you talk about this young team. 
But I, I mean, if you look look at what they inherited, and they talk about this a lot too. If you look at the lack of international scouting, the lack of analytic infrastructure, the development systems that were in place, they have overhauled this organization. Like in in terms of what Michael Elias and and his group were hired to do with the scouting and the development, they've done it. They've they've really mm-hmm. followed that that Astros blueprint to a T, and they've developed the best farm system in baseball by many measures and. You just look at the group of talent they have. If you just walk around the, the, the spring training clubhouse, they've brought their top 10 prospects to camp, and you can just see that the names are different in that room right now. And it, it's exciting to see, but at the same time, if they use that group and win a World Series and they don't make these external additions, it, it will be heralded as one of the most impressive jobs that any team has ever done in baseball. So I think that there's an aspect of this that is, wow, look at what we achieved without having to do a bunch of stuff externally. Look at what we built internally. And so I, I'm sure that's, that's a point of pride. They feel really good about where they're at organizationally right now. I, I think over time, uh, if things stay in place, there that is there's a portion of the Orioles fan base that is convinced that this team is never going to spend money. They have spent money in the past, but you know, Michael Elias also has referred to some of those years in the 2011 to 2018 range when they were in you know the upper half of the league in payroll as the team being over its means, uh, which is not welcome to hear if you're an Orioles fan in terms of what it would take to think, you know, that this team could be a legitimate contender. Uh, over time, obviously, you know, Abby Rutschman is going to get into arbitration. Gunnar Henderson is going to get in ar- into arbitration. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle is going to get in arbitration. Salaries are going to naturally go up, and, and that will change the picture a little bit. But I, I think any fan who hears John Angelos evoke Tampa and Cleveland and Milwaukee and thinks, oh, I would love us to sign Abby Rutschman long term, I, I think that's a legitimate cause for concern is how long are these guys going to be here if that's the models, the organizations that they're using to compare themselves to. Right. And, you know, other teams have uh, caught on to certain things since the Astros did their tank and rebuild. It, it's harder to stay ahead of the pack. And also the AL East in 2023 is a different animal from the AL West in the middle of last decade or now for that matter. So you do, you know, no matter how much talent you develop internally, you're probably going to have to spend at some point if you want to roll with the Yankees and uh, other teams in that division. So you mentioned uh, the comment about the team being over its means and and so that just sparked a, a follow-up about John Means and the Orioles were over him last year. I, I said that they were very healthy last season than they were, and that was a factor in their success. But an exception to that was John Means, who missed almost the whole season. And so he's expected to be back at, at some point this year. Where is he in his rehab process and what's his expected timeline? Yeah, he should be throwing off a half mount here in the next week or so. He is expected back sometime in July. Is, is what it sounds like at this point. Obviously, that will get a little more definite as he actually increases his throwing program, but that's going to be a big addition for them. Obviously, I think the, the hope is that they're competitive there in the race. They're making some moves at the trade deadline to supplement and boost this team, unlike what they did last year. And, and John Means would represent kind of a natural addition without having to part with anything. Obviously, he was their best pitcher throughout the rebuilding years, an all-star in 2019. Uh, really dominant early in the 2021 season. So there's there's a lot of value. He's still around the team. He, you know, I was talking to him today about just kind of the rebuild at large, and he was saying how, how much he enjoyed just getting to be around the team last year, the energy, and, and he can't wait to be back, and the Orioles can't wait to have him back. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the, the trade deadline and the potential for additions. You know, what, what do you think it would take both in terms of 
their actual standing in the East, their overall playoff odds, but then maybe even just some of the, you know, underlying metrics that give us a real sense of how good this team is for them to be aggressive adders at the deadline, because we've talked about a lot of their top guys who I imagine would take some doing to part with, but this is a deep system overall. So it's not like they're in a position where they necessarily have to part with marquee prospects to add. Where do they need to be for them to be buyers at the deadline? Yeah, Michael Elias said at the winter meetings that if, if there was a trade they wanted to execute, they would have the capital to pull it off. So that isn't going to be the question. It's just a matter of, are they willing to meet that? I, I definitely think that if they were in a comparable position to what they were in last season, it would be a different story. Uh, they don't have the same type of pending free agents. Uh, obviously, you know, Kyle Gibson and Adam Frazier will be in that boat. And, and so they could have some conversations there especially as they have the infielders coming up, as they have John Means coming back. Like, if, depending on what the situation is, that, that could be a possibility. But you would think with, you know, Elias, Angelos, Brandon Hyde, all kind of declaring this the rebuild to be behind them, you would think if they're in the same situation where with last year it was they were 500, they were just a couple games out of a wild card spot. If they're in the race, and they've expressly stated, our goal is for this season to, to be in the playoffs, and, and, and if they pass on that opportunity, if it's in front of them and they don't take it, I think that would be pretty jarring to the fan base and they have historically shown that that's maybe not a, a top factor in their decision making but when they have outright said you know our our effort this season is directed towards being in the playoff race and, and making the postseason if if they're in a similar position to what they were in last year where it's reasonably in reach I think it would definitely be a surprise to see them not make a, a big effort to make an addition. Amid all the exciting uh, young guys, uh, there are some veteran imports on this team, right? Maybe placeholders, uh, the James McCanns and the Adam Frazier's, a couple of guys who are coming off of disappointing seasons and looking at expected stats. Uh, I guess you could say they underperformed what they could have been capable of last year. So is that the hope that uh, their stats will match their expected stats or that others will quickly displace them? Because I I saw, you know, when Frazier was signed that some people questioned whether he was actually any better than the internal options that the Orioles already had. But, you know, I guess there's always the the veteran leadership component of this with a young team, too. Yeah, they kind of have like an Adam Frazier light already in Taron Bavra, who's a right. second baseman who is left-handed, doesn't have a ton of power, great batting eye, makes a lot of contact. So there are some questions when they made that move of like, what kind of fit is this? But I think you value, you know, Bobber didn't get a ton of major league playing time last year. When he was up, he, he didn't get a ton of opportunities. They really stuck with Ruben and Odor. There's some questions about the glove. And, and with Adam Frazier, the, the glove questions aren't there. There's a, they really value what he brings defensively. If you look at the infield mix they're going to have, it's, it's really quality in terms of defense with Mateo, Henderson, Ramon Arias, Frazier. That, that's a group they really like defensively. And so I think they'll like that rotation early. But I, I do think that at some point you're going to have the guys like the Westbergs, the Ortizes, the Norbies pushing, you know, Mateo, Arias, Frazier uh, throughout the season. I think James McCann's a little more second place. There isn't quite as clear of a, a challenger coming up uh, to back up Adley Rutschman. They do have some guys and, you know, they got a Ma- they have Maverick Hanley, who they drafted five rounds after Adley, who hasn't quite broken out yet, but is an interesting player. They're, they're big international signing to this point. Uh, Samuel Basayo, who is going to be stateside for the first, or not stateside, but in affiliated ball for the first time this year. So there are some guys coming, I think. McCann is solid. I think they, they hope, to your point, that there is going to be some bounce back from these guys. And same thing with the Kyle Gibson in terms of just the numbers last year weren't pretty, but they did have successful seasons in their recent history. And, and I, I think they really believe in what they do now in terms of 
player development, not only in the farm system, but at the major league level of, you know, helping players succeed and do what they do best. And I think they just have a lot of confidence now in their ability. I think that gets back into the projections. Like there are things that they see that they believe they're going to do that maybe some things are missing that they're seeing internally that, uh, you know, that leads them to believe that this team can be more successful than maybe is being viewed externally. Yeah, and one thing they did was uh, make some strides in the bullpen, too. It was a fairly effective bullpen last year, certainly relative to the previous season. And they did bring in another veteran and bring back a familiar face in Michael Givens. But it seemed like they had success last year just when it came to pitcher development at the big league level. And also just in terms of telling their pitchers, hey, throw the ball over the plate, right? Sort of the Reyes model of your stuff is good enough, so don't worry about uh, painting the corners every time just get the ball over the plate and and the stuff will take care of itself so is that their philosophy is that worked kind of you know having catchers set up just down the middle and, and say hey fire it in yeah they they use that method early in the season but they they abandoned it halfway through when these guys kind of realized like oh yeah i've got good stuff like i'm mm. I, I can pitch up here and and you look at the stuff they had i think that's a huge leap is just when you look at what they had coming out of the bullpen relative to past seasons. They've had some hard throwers in prior seasons, but you look at what Jorge Lopez was at the beginning of last year, Batista, Baker, Perez, uh, Dylan Tate took a lot of steps forward. He's going to miss the first month of the year, which makes the given signing even bigger, but they, they just have stuff. They have legitimate stuff and it, 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 it was stuff that could get by hitters. And so when, once they trusted that stuff, once they were throwing strikes, uh, Abby Rutschman, Robinson Torino's, they, they stopped having to be so, just throw it in the strike zone. The pitchers knew they had that confidence and, and they were throwing strikes. They were pinpointing and, but just organizationally, I think that they've taken a lot of steps forward in terms of attack planning and sequencing. There's a lot of just internal knowledge now of what they need to do to be successful. Each guy knows what his best weapons are and what situations they play in before they take the mound against those particular hitters. And, and so I think just organizationally, what they've done is allowed themselves to put those players in the best positions. And now they have players with the stuff to take advantage of it. So it's not Martin Luther King Day. I think that means it's safe to ask one more question about John Angelos. So it seems like there's been some resolution to the intra-Angelos lawsuit. So maybe you could give us an update on that and on the franchise's future in baseball and also the franchise's future in Camden Yards after declining the lease extension option, presumably in order to try to extract an even more sweetheart deal on the place. So give us a, a sense of those big picture questions about the organization and its leadership yeah well it is national inane answering day so hopefully, hopefully i'm not doing too much of that but yeah i think if you look at the big picture that this obviously brought a lot of stuff into the limelight the family would have liked to keep out of it and i think part of the reason it was resolved is more stuff was going to come as as this got closer and closer to heading to a trial and, and things of that nature and so they they came to a resolution that hasn't been publicized but Obviously disappointing for the family to have the stuff that came out come out. Uh, John Angelos has been pretty adamant for the last several years, even though there's still not a new lease in place, that this team is staying in Baltimore. And obviously that will be a lot easier for people to accept once a new lease is in place. They had an option earlier this month to extend it by five years, declined to do that, leaving it to expire at the end of this year. Uh, the Ravens, just across the street, had five years left on their lease when they agreed to a new one. There's $600 million in public funds available for both of those teams by agreeing to a long-term lease. So that was the Ravens' motivation. The Orioles have that same motivation. They're looking to make upgrades to their ballpark. And John Angelos is really focused on making upgrades to the area around it, too. Uh, he's 
you threw around the expression, you know, live, work, play 365. He wants the ballpark to be a place for people to come when there aren't Orioles games there. And that's why these concerts are happening. That's why Billy Joel was here in 2019 or there in 2019. And that's why Paul McCartney came. And that's why Bruce Springsteen is coming. And even though uh, it comes off pretty poorly when John Angelos lists his priorities as concerts and the, then the public-private partnership and then the team, it does speak to the effort he's making to let his baseball people do the job, which is something that I know people complained about with his father. And so there, there is, you know, people are in the jobs that John Angelos believes they're best suited for. And he believes he is in the role that he is best suited for of handling these off field matters. And it is unfortunate that the things that came to light about him and his family did in the way they did. And I'm sure it's, not been easy on any of them, especially when you look at the situation with their father and the health he's in. But at the same time, they are running a baseball team. And you would hope that the the focus at some point becomes winning with that baseball team. And obviously, they've done what they need to do at the minor league level and in the farm system to create the systems in place. Uh, but I think it's fair to question, especially when you look at what they're comparing themselves to, how, how high they're aiming in that regard. And I, obviously, as time goes on, we'll get a better picture of that. But Hopefully in the near future, there's a new lease in place. The team's going to be committed to Baltimore for the, for the long-term future. And some other things happen around it that drive up revenues and, and get people excited about coming to the ballpark. And that in turn leads to an increase in payroll and, and, and a better baseball team. And I, I, all of this is kind of cyclic, but it, it hopefully in the long run, John Angelos gets what he wants for Baltimore and Orioles fans get what they want for the Orioles. All right. So we always end these previews by asking what would qualify as a success for this team in 2023. And like the Phillies, the first team we talked about, the Orioles had a successful season last year. Now, in a different way, obviously, they didn't make the playoffs, but they took such a huge step forward in the regular season, got back to respectability and did it in an exciting way. And so having one successful season then sort of raises the bar for success in the subsequent season. Although, as we talked about earlier, there's also the risk of regression. So what would be a successful follow-up for the Orioles, both at the big league level, but also below if you want to go there, since this is still a, a team that is trying to develop and promote prospects? Yeah, I think at the major league level, it's pretty clear that they need to make the playoffs for this to be considered a successful season. That's the benchmark. The front office has said that's the benchmark the coaching staff has set, that's the benchmark the players are setting. So I think if they fall short of that, this season will be a disappointment for sure. And there'll be some evaluation that needs to be done on the player level, on the coaching staff level, and potentially even on the front office level. I think that they've set a standard for themselves now. They've come out and said, we want to make the playoffs. So I think that's the benchmark they need to judge themselves on. I think the on the minor league level, one thing that would be kind of considered a success is finding who the next Grayson Rodriguez or D.L. Hall is. This organization since Michael Elias took over has been guided by those two as their top pitching prospects. And obviously the hope is both of those guys are going to graduate this year. And there are some questions about who's going to come in behind them. They got Kate Povich in the Jorge Lopez trade, and they really like him. He's looked really good this spring. They've got some other guys coming. Noah Neuer's on the 40-man roster now. And, and you've got you know Chase McDermott, who is in the Trey Mancini trade, who's maybe a little lower on that list. Potentially, you know, whoever they get with the 17th overall pick fits in that mold. But I think just kind of finding that next pitcher, they've obviously focused so much in the draft on hitting, and it's obviously paid off in terms of those prospect rankings. But they inherited D.L. Hall, they inherited Grayson Rodriguez, and, and getting their own next top guy, I think that would be a really big step for the organization. 
All right. Well, we can find out if the Orioles do succeed by their own measurement. Although, really, if uh, they're defining making the playoffs as as a success, then there's more they could have done to ensure that that will happen. Because, you know, (laughs) the odds, at least according to the public projections, not in their favor at this point, though it's uh, hardly out of the realm of possibility. Anyway, I wish them well. Orioles fans have uh, been long suffering, or if not the longest suffering, at least the most acutely suffering (laughs) over a fairly short time frame so you can follow the Orioles uh, attempt to make it back to the playoffs all season long at the Baltimore Sun Nathan will be covering them you can also find him on Twitter at Nathan S. Ruiz thank you very much Nathan yeah guys I really appreciate it all right thanks to Matt and thanks to Nathan I'm sure the latter will let us know as soon as John Angelos makes good on his promise to open Baltimore's books should be any day now let's wrap up with the pass blast which comes to us from 1973 and from David Lewis who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston and he writes 1973 a new spin on the double header 1973 was a year of great change in professional baseball as American League owners agreed to begin using a designated hitter at first on a three-year trial basis. And we know from the zombie runner how the trial basis often goes. The DH was not, however, the only rule change tried out that season. In the Class A Florida State League, a different kind of bold experiment was unveiled, a three-team doubleheader in which a home team would play two different visiting squads on the same day. The plan was hatched due to an uneven number of teams in each of the league's divisions. While on paper it may sound like an interesting way to get fans to the ballpark and a unique idea to solve a scheduling nightmare in practice, the plan was nearly universally panned. A number of complaints with the experiment were reported in a May 21, 1973 Miami Herald article, including the increased overall time of a three-team doubleheader and a general lack of fan interest. Miami Orioles general manager Ralph Moorcroft was quoted as saying, Our fans don't like the doubleheaders. Most of them are gone by the third inning of the second game. A lot of our fans are old, and they have to get their sleep. Backlash against the plan was such that the league ditched the idea after one season, increasing division sizes to six teams apiece in order to avoid scheduling mishaps. So we have talked and we did a previous pass blast, the 1951 pass blast, about rare occasions where there was a three-team doubleheader in the majors because of uh, some emergency, some kind of uh, weather-related whatever it was where you had to reschedule something. So in 1951, there was one of these with the Giants and St. Louis and, and the Boston Braves, I think. And this happened most recently in the majors in the year 2000, I think, where you had a double header with more than two teams but this year in 73 in this league it was uh, just a planned part of the schedule in the FSL and yeah people didn't like it I, I looked at the article and it says uh, someone explains we were forced to go to three team doubleheaders Moorcroft said because of five team divisions at the league meeting in Orlando we had a computer spit out a couple hundred different schedules and this seemed to be the only feasible one So, I don't know, maybe the 1973-era computers screwed up, or maybe this really was the best way to do it on paper or on computer, but in practice, uh, people didn't like it so much, and it was just a one-year experiment. And and the players had to show up. They had to be at the ballpark an hour after the first game started or be fined, and so they had to just sort of sit in the stands for an hour before getting dressed and then had to wait for the game to finish, and then the fans had to wait— 
at least a half hour between games while the new team warmed up. And then I guess, you know, one team would have been fatigued and the other less so. So just a a far from ideal system in many ways. So the, the DH lasted. The three team doubleheaders did not. And I'm not sorry to say that that's the case. Yeah, I mean, geez, we all we all have to rest, Ben. It's not just a thing for old people. We all have to sleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, I wanted to also pass along that one of our listeners and Patreon supporters, Reggie, he submitted a, a another nomination for a 1973 pass blast, which is a good one, which is that at the end of the 1973 MLB season in the National League, there was a, a total, complete chaos scenario late in that season going into the final weekend where there was a potential five-way tie in the NL East, which had six teams. So I will read to you from a UPI report published September 30th, 1973. This is just a few days before the end of the regular season. Headline, possible five-way tie in National Loop East. It's still a long shot, but if the results of seven games break the right way in the next two days, there will be a five-way tie for first place in the National League East. This is what has to happen for the tie to occur. Chicago sweeps four games from New York on Sunday and Monday. St. Louis loses to Philadelphia today. Montreal beats Pittsburgh today. Pittsburgh beats San Diego in a makeup game Monday. If those games end that way, New York, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Montreal, and Chicago would end up in a five-way tie for first place at 80 and 82, and a special playoff would open Tuesday. Of course, it's unlikely to happen since the New York Mets only have to win two of their final four games from Chicago to clinch the crown. And even if the Mets just win one of the four games, they will automatically eliminate all teams except St. Louis. But a five-way tie is still a possibility, even if it's a remote one, as the season comes to a close. And not only was there not a five-way tie in the end, there was no tie at all. I will read from Reggie's email here. Hope for the five-way tie begins to die around 2.30 Eastern or so on Sunday. Montreal had an early lead at Pittsburgh, but the Pirates storm back and go on to a 10 to two route so pittsburgh is very much still alive the cardinals also win their game three to one which eliminates the cubs but chicago for its part wins the first game of the twin bill one to nothing and that result was in before the cardinals result was known the mets win the second game nine to two but since the cardinals won there was still a potential three-way tie that wouldn't resolve until monday the 81 and 81 cardinals awoke on monday knowing their only hope was to have chicago take two against the mets and then the cubs will have nothing to play for pittsburgh at 80 and 81 also was relying on the cubs Plus, they had to win the home makeup with San Diego. The Pirates would lose that home makeup 4-3, and the Mets would finally secure the NL East with a 6-4 win at Chicago, meaning that the second game would be called off as it would not be required, sending the Mets on to the NLCS against a much stronger Reds team that they would ultimately defeat before falling in a World Series that went the distance against Oakland. It's easy to be nostalgic for the possibility of something like that happening because we don't even have, you know, the the remote possibility that it could happen now because we've gotten rid of tiebreakers, right? So you can't possibly have this happen anymore, which is sort of sad, even though it didn't happen, it could have. And that was, I think, the closest we came to it. And there have been some other times where it was a possibility, like uh, in 2017, we talked about it on the podcast, episode 1099, and Russell Carlton wrote about what you would do if it happened at that point. But this was, from some people's perspective, a a nightmare scenario, and from other people's perspective, it was uh, the dream scenario, you know, (laughs) Team Entropy, whoever was uh, carrying that banner at the time before Jay Jaffe. People were sort of excited about this. And and I did an article in 2012 
where I asked someone at MLB who was in charge of scheduling at the time, like what would happen if there were a five team tie and they didn't know they didn't have a a provision for that. They didn't have a five team tiebreaker scenario, which is sort of surprising given how close they came in 1973. And I did find in, in the Chicago Tribune, there was a, a little chart on Sunday, September 30th, 1973, that showed what would have happened. I, I found another article that said that the commissioner, Bowie Kuhn, hadn't really decided what they would do. But this Tribune piece said that if there were a five-way tie, basically like the Cubs would have gotten a bye in the first round and the Expos and Cardinals would have played each other on the Tuesday and the Pirates and the Mets would have played each other the same day. And then the winner of Pirates-Mets would have gotten a bye while the Cubs played the winner of Expos-Cardinals. And then I guess the Thursday, then there would have been a, a final showdown, right? And that would have decided the NL East champion. As it was, the Mets won that division, which some papers referred to as the NL Least with an 82 and 79 record, <laughs> which was, I think, the worst of any division winner until the 2005 Padres won the NL West with an 82 and 80 record. But this was just a, a really weird scenario that I'm sort of sorry didn't happen and, and these days it, it couldn't happen anymore. We've done away with the dream even of a, a five team tie scenario. Can you imagine being a broadcaster having to explain all of that oh to my people? Gosh. Holy <laughs> yeah. Moses. You yeah. would, have need, would have needed visual aids for sure. <laughs> yes. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. We will tackle the Cardinals and Diamondbacks previews next time. In the meantime, a reminder, if you're interested in becoming the next editor of Effectively Wild, please email wanted at fangraphs.com, subject line podcast editor 2023 as soon as possible. And if you're interested in supporting us on Patreon and, among other things, making it possible for us to earn enough revenue that David Appleman and Fangraphs can afford to pay a podcast editor, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Natalie Andreeva, JJ Evans, Doug W., David Kim, and William Flanagan. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for Patreon supporters. It's buzzing with these spring training games going on. There are channels for every team. There's also a live game chat channel. It's a great place to follow and talk baseball in a very inclusive, welcoming community. You also get access to monthly bonus podcasts, one of which Meg and I will be recording this weekend, plus playoff live streams and discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can contact us via email at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks once again to Dylan Higgins for his ongoing editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. When I meet at someone Tell me who came along I was hoping you'd come Cause I really wanted you Yes, I